Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's number one electronic flight bag. Now with support for New Zealand, Africa and Asia Pacific. Get a free one-month trial today at ozrunways.com and buy 50 Tales of Flight by Owens Up. Now available in ebook and in paperback at amazon.com and at owensup.com.au. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 119 of Australia's Aviation Show. I'm Steve Vischer, and joining me as always, the man for whom no hot air balloon is too much of a challenge, Grant McHeron. How are you, mate? Yeah, not too bad, mate. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm trying to just think of more witty ways to introduce you every week. <laughs> I've noticed this. I've noticed this. And uh, what do you mean every week? It's been a little longer than that since the last show. I'm trying to remember how we do this. Yeah, I know. I know. We keep telling our audience that, uh, you know, they'll be onto us if we keep this up. You know, Grant, uh, the other morning, as I was uh, trundling into town in the train I was driving, or having driven for me by my student, um, I noticed a, a number of hot air balloons drifting across towards what I assume was Moorabbin, and I thought, gee whiz, I wonder if Grant knows anything about those. Well, it turns out you were in one. That's right, mate. I was uh, taking a taking a wee break from the chaos of the office and uh, going to fly with one of our pilots, a friend of ours in from the UK. He's been down here this season uh, flying for us uh, over Melbourne, and I realised I hadn't had a chance to go fly with him, and uh, and there was a need for a bit of ballast, and uh, who better to put some ballast in than big old me? So uh, I came along and enjoyed the ride and it was a beautiful flight, lovely time. Went right over the top of our house, actually. Oh, lovely. Was, yeah, you couldn't have planned that, I tell you. And uh, yeah, it was probably a good thing I was on because uh, we wound up landing just on the other side of a creek from where we wanted to be. So when the other, when the ground crew arrived, I was able to throw a line across the creek and then uh, get back on. And we just uh, re-inflate, you know, like heated it back up, got buoyant, and uh, with the line attached to the vehicle, uh, just pivoted us across the creek. It was great. Well, you know, I tell you what, uh, more vertical and takeoff landing technology than the, you know we probably need to know about. But we might even be talking about the, a bit about that stuff a bit later on in this show because we're going to be talking a lot in this episode about the uh, introduction into service, pending of course, of the F-35 for the Royal Australian Air Force. Uh, of course, so the government uh, has announced recently that they'll be uh, buying a further 58 airframes, taking the uh, total uh, purchase order there to 72 aircraft. These aircraft have been on the books for a long time. There's been a lot of talk about it, very controversial in some sectors, depending on who you want to talk to some people uh, have you know some strong views for and against it but uh, yeah whatever grant it's coming that's right mate no matter what you think about it australia is getting it uh, we've committed and uh well you know how are we going to bring it online and what exactly are we getting so uh, we already have some information about that uh, that's been in the various uh forms of the aviation press about the aircraft, uh, but we thought we'd uh, get a bit more information on it and especially focus on how it's going to be uh, added into the RAF's uh, lineup. Now, of course, uh, we'd like to pretend that we're experts on this aircraft, but, uh, you know, really, we're, we're just opinionated enthusiasts, but someone who's uh, much, much closer to this uh, program and knows a lot more about it is the Principal from Communications Intelligence, a consultancy for the aerospace and defence sectors, Andrew McLaughlin, and he joins us now. G'day, Andrew. Steve, Grant, how are you? We're very well, mate. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you back with us. 
Chris. Yeah, good to be back. Thanks. Now, the F-35, mate, gee whiz, uh, you're very close to this project. You've you've sort of worked inside and outside of it. And, of course, uh, if anybody reads the latest edition of Australian Aviation Magazine, they'll see a, a huge big uh, article in there on that aircraft. It's it's controversial. Uh, you know, you hear a lot of negativity about it. I guess that's par for the course, mate, for, uh, for any sort of uh, new aircraft that's coming in. I mean, I, I guess that would have been the case, uh, you know, when the F-111s came in, perhaps even the Hornets, I can't remember. But uh, this one certainly has uh, generated a lot of interest in the press. It, it certainly has. And, and, you know, some of it's been warranted. It, it, the program is late. There, there have been some development issues. Uh, certainly in this age of social media and, and need it right now news, there's a lot more opportunities for, for critics of the program to get their voice heard. Um, and, and like I said, some of that has been warranted. Yes, well, of course, the point is that um, for what, you know, whether you agree with the program or not, and uh, I guess uh, there's plenty of blogs around that uh, would disagree with it, the fact is that the government is uh, committed to it. Australia has been a partner in this program as far back as uh, I think about 2002. So uh, it is coming. So the point is now that we have to uh, make sure that uh, the Air Force, you know, stands up their units uh, you know, in good order and make sure that everybody is uh, ready to go when they come into service in uh, four or five years from now. Yeah, that's right. And, and the program managers will tell you we're not just taking delivery of aeroplanes. We need to take delivery of a capability. These things need to be ready to go by the end of 2020 because the classic Hornets are running out of puff. So it, it is a big job between now and then to to get them ready, to get a, you know the right number of crews trained up to be able to integrate the jet into our systems. And, and so the work is certainly ahead of the guys, for sure. Now, when you say that the, uh, the classic Hornets are running out of Puff, can you describe, if you know, for people who are perhaps not as uh, intimate with the program, just what exactly that means? Yeah, well, um, the point's been made recently that the classic Hornets we have now are not the same as the classic Hornets we took delivery of, but it must be remembered that the airframes are the same. The systems may have changed and evolved, but the airframes basically were built between 1985 and 1991. That means the youngest airframe right now is uh, 23 years old, and um, when they uh, go out of service, the old, oldest one will be close to 37 years old. So you can only um, change the uh, farmer's axe's head and handle <laughs> so many times before it, it really gets too old. And we, we can, we're talking about particular uh, issues such as uh, airframe fatigue, I guess would be the biggest thing going on there. Yeah, there's there's fatigue issues all th- throughout the aircraft and that and they're manageable as long as you throw enough money at it. But they, it comes enough, there comes a time where, you know, you're just not getting the return for the bucks. It, the the aeroplanes will be in the hangar more than they'll be on the flight line and, you know, it, it becomes unma- unmanageable at, at a certain point. And I note with interest uh, too, Andrew, that uh, I've seen in the in the aviation press just in the last couple of days that the uh, the Canadian forces are uh, expressing similar concerns about their Hornets. I think their Hornets are actually probably even a few years older than ours, some of the earlier ones, and uh, it's interesting too that they're also partners in this F-35 program. Yeah, their oldest jets are two or three years older than ours. Uh, they bought about 130 jets, so they have they culled their fleet back to about 85 about a decade ago, and so they kept the best, retired the worst, um, and they've been rotating their jets through uh, sort of a pool, I guess. But you're right, they use their jets very similarly to the way we use ours. Um, you know, they're, they're a multi-role aircraft, whereas, you know, in Navy and Marine Corps service, they're primarily used for air-to-ground. So they are they are experiencing similar uh, fatigue issues to us, and they need to make a decision very soon. I guess as the, uh, to, to use your analogy, uh, the farmer's axe has had its uh, head and handle replaced enough times, and uh, time to move on and go to a chainsaw, I guess. I guess so. that's and that's a good analogy. Okay, so of course the the F thirty five roadshow has been down here in Australia uh, quite extensively lately, and uh, we caught up with uh, many people connected with that program. Of course, they had the mock up there at the uh, centenary of military aviation air show there at Point Cook a couple of months back, and uh, we, we were very fortunate to uh, be able to catch up with a number of people there that uh, were, were quite happy to talk. There, I mean, there was a lot of people looking over that mock up. In fact, Grant, we even got to sit in it and look like we knew what we were doing. It was great. Oh, I loved it. It actually had burners. I, I could equate to that. You know, I'm used to pulling the 
trigger and the burners go on. Here, right. all I had to do is just push the stick forward and the burners came on. Yay. Yeah. Okay, and of course, uh, back then, of course, uh, they also made the announcement the first two pilots that will be going across uh, from the Air Force here across to the United States to begin uh, conversion training there. And of course, uh, the skills that they learn on the F-35, they'll in turn pass on to uh, many more pilots here in the Royal Australian Air Force as they start to stand up these squadrons. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking to uh, Lockheed Martin's test pilot for the F-35, Billy Flynn. In fact, we've got two interviews with him, Grant. Uh, we spoke to him first uh, there at Point Cook, and then you uh, darted up to Canberra to talk a bit more with him uh, a bit later about the uh, F-35's uh, rather unique helmet. That's right, mate. I uh, attended a, a press briefing with a bit more information about uh, where the F-35 program was at and uh, got a chance to fly the simulator. I say fly because, uh, well, you know, I didn't quite manage to crash it, but dang, I gave it a good go. <clears throat> yeah, I think I'll stick to balloons, mate. But uh, yeah, it was it was a good chat with Billy about the helmet and also recorded a chat with Stephen Over about uh, F-35 component manufacturing in Australia. Add to that an interview with Graham Bentley, uh, who's uh, very involved with the program. He's a representative with uh, Lockheed Martin, and uh, he talks to us uh, not only about the F-35, but actually his history in Australian military service really interesting and uh, a bit later in the show our feature interview will be with Air Vice Marshal Kim Osley and uh, Grant uh, he's uh, responsible for the uh, entire integration program with the F-35 into the RAF. That's right mate, uh, spent a bit of time chatting with Cos as he's also known, uh, Air Vice Marshal Kim Osley aka Cos, really nice guy and uh, he's been right in the heart of it with the F-35 getting uh, the RAF and uh, Defence ready to stand it up and have it running lots of uh, really interesting information about all the work that's required to uh, be ready for operations and it's not just uh, tarmac and buildings and so on it's quite interesting we got into a good chat about uh, a uh, rather important piece of software that helps you run the f-35 from the ground so uh, more on that shortly fantastic and after that we're going to come back uh, after that interview and uh, grill uh, andrew a bit more with uh, lots more questions about the f-35 so guys uh, let's kick the episode off Ladies and gents, uh, I'm Air Vice Marshal Kim Osley. Um, I've just finished up three years as the program manager of the new air combat capability, looking at the introduction of the F-35 into Australian service. Just to provide a bit of context, uh, government in 2009 approved the first 14 F-35 aircraft. Uh, but two of those aircraft are coming off the production line a bit later this year, around about July or August. They'll go through a process of being inducted into uh, service into the Royal Australian Air Force. They'll serve overseas in the US in the training capacity, and that's where our, our two pilots will meet up with them at Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix, Arizona. They'll undertake uh, their training on those aircraft and then, of course, train the next generation of, uh, or the next series of pilots after that. The ultimate aim is that, uh, subject to government approval, we'll uh, seek up to uh, another 58 aircraft on top of the 14 to make 72 F-35s. They'll replace the F-18AB in Australian service, and we're looking at an introduction into service of 2020, and it, that is our initial operating capability, and that will be at Williamtown Air Force Base, and we'll have an operational and a training squadron then and then ultimately we're looking at a full operational capability replacing the F-18AB by 2023. It's with a tremendous pleasure that I'm able to introduce to you uh, the two pilots so uh, David Bell and uh, Andrew Jackson uh, squadron leaders both uh, current uh, F-18 pilots will be going off uh, to United States next year to be the first Australian JSF 
pilots and they will continue that history uh, that we're showing here today at Point Cook and ladies and gents if I could uh, invite both pilots now to perhaps introduce themselves and say a few words. Over to you Bell. Uh, Dave Bell, Belly, um, just want to start by saying what, a, what an absolute thrill it is to have been um, selected to um, to be one of the first couple of guys to go and fly the JSF. I'll be number two. Um, Jacko will be, uh, will be number, number one, so he'll start uh, early next year, myself, um, uh, later on in the year. Uh, it's such a rare opportunity to be able to fly uh, your current aeroplane, which for us is the F-18 uh, AB model, um, and then to be able to transition to uh, a next-generation fighter, such as the F-35 my own role in uh, in the program, my other background as a as a test pilot. Um, so when we bring the aircraft back to Australia in 2018, um, we're going to need to do a lot of work uh, to get it ready uh, to get the first squadron ready um, to be uh, fully uh, operational by 2020. And that's where my background as a test pilot will, will come in. Um, it's such a privilege to have been uh, selected for this uh, for this job. And on, the, on my current aeroplane, the F-18, I'm about number five or six hundred uh, in the list of the Australian pilots that's flying it. So uh, number two, it's not number one, but uh, number two is pretty good. <laughs> uh, Squadron Leader Andrew Jackson, Jacko, uh, a bit older than Belly, so I couldn't afford to wait to be number two, I guess. Um, basically, I've been uh, with Defence since 95. Uh, started flying the F-18 in 2000, and I've been flying that uh, since that time. Um, as far as the fifth gen role goes, uh, I did fight a combat instructor course back in 2004. Uh, so I sort of come in more from the capability and the instruct instructional side, uh, and, and I'll be leading that um, from the States from the end of this year. Basically, as I said previously, super excited about getting onto the jet. Um, it's an awesome capability jump from what I'm currently involved in, and uh, it's a really good opportunity for me and David to get over there. Billy Flynn, welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under, mate. Thank you for having me here. Okay, now uh, you're here with the F-35. You're flying the F-35, but how did you get to this point? I believe you're ex-Canadian. I was uh, in the Canadian Air Force for 23 years. I was the original Hornet baby uh, in the Canadian Air Force. I flew the, the Hornet 31 years ago. I grew up in the F-18, flew the F-16, and later in life I was a Eurofighter Typhoon test pilot. Now, I understand you've actually seen combat with the Canadians and I was. the Hornet? In uh, 1999, I was the commanding officer of the Canadian forces that flew in Operation Allied Force that bombed Kosovo and Serbia as part of a NATO force. And so you got you were able to roll all that uh, like training and, and skills plus also the real combat ability into where you're at now. So uh, in fact going to combat is a huge part of what I bring into the F-35 world having experienced flowing, uh, having flown legacy jets yep. in combat and knowing what they can and cannot do. Now that's the classic, uh, the, the classic Hornet, and to a degree the Super Hornet, and so on. They're all they're all a, uh, a Generation Four fighter. So where would you put the Typhoon in there? And I have flown really only Legacy fighters up until this point. An F-18, whether it's a Classic or a Super, an F-16, all variants, a Typhoon. They all fit in a world where we measured them one to the next based on kinematics and kinematics alone. How fast did you go? How much G did you pull? How high did you go? How slow did you fight? And how many missiles could you trade against each other? And it was always a war of attrition. That's all of those legacy fighters. Fifth generation fighters, like the F-22 Raptor and the F-35, eclipse all of that. Let's assume, let's know that we can do all the kinematics the same. An F-35 goes 1.6 Mach, pulls 9G, this airplane that is represented behind us has 43,000 pounds of thrust from the most powerful fighter engine ever made. 
goes as fast as everything we all flew. It's quicker off the mark than a Hornet, easily by the way, and can fly slower than even an F-18 that we see in the slow speed pass. So we do kinematics. That's not the secret of fifth gen. Fifth generation is stealth and information given to the pilot, fused from all the sensors on board that gives him a, an order of magnitude more information to prosecute than he ever had before. And you come and go with impunity in a stealth airplane. Not invisible, so let's be clear. This is not Harry Potter and the Cloak <laughs> of Invisibility. But by the time you, you went and returned to home, they, they hadn't figured out that you were there in the first place. Yeah. So you operate with complete impunity. And the tactics of how you employ a jet like this are completely different than everything that we knew yeah. as in for 30 years flying Hornets. One of the concepts of this aircraft, of course, is that there's different variants they can use it for different forces, be it Navy, be it Marines, be it Air Force. Historically, that's always been an issue. I guess the F-111 is probably a good example of that where it hasn't worked. Why will this aircraft work where those haven't worked before? Is it because of the lessons learned from history? So it's a great question, right? Because in burning in the heads of the US Navy and the Air Force was the lesson of the F-117. I'll tell you that I fly all three variants and, and a different one on any given day and when I step in the jet I've actually if I was blindfolded and you took that blindfold off I would have no idea <laughs> what variant I'm in because everything is common on the inside of the jet the guts and how it works all the software is the same in every single F-35 built they do their roles a little bit differently getting off the ground and landing at the end of the day, but the rest of how you fly this jet and how you will employ stealth tactics is pretty much the same one to the next. And that's important. So I, I come from a Canadian background. Small Air Force contributes to bigger coalition. Yep. Uh, outside of the exterior of where I grew up, we worried about interoperability. Now when we talk about more than 3,000 F-35s to be built, you'll take small air forces that will contribute to be a bigger package and everybody will operate seamlessly one to the next. Obviously, uh, you know, when you talk about the Canadian Air Force, the Royal Australian Air Force, I guess, would play a similar role when you're talking about that concept. Clearly, so yeah. for the first time unique in the F-35 world, the small air forces will be able to force project just like the big air forces did of the world, because we'll be able, one to the next, to have a presence that is dramatically bigger than the small components that we contribute one at a time. Well, there is one unique variant, of course, that's the one that does the vertical takeoff and landing. I wonder if you could describe for our listeners how that feels to fly that one, and if you've flown something like the Aving 8B, I don't know whether you have or not, but is it a different concept? I mean, that must be a very unique feeling to transition from going straight up and into straight and level flight. Well, the Harrier took years to develop. It's a great story of engineering to be able to hover finally and land vertically. But it was remarkably hard to fly. Every part of its history for 40 years was how hard it was for the pilots to manipulate the controls, to control the nozzles, to keep that airplane stable. I will tell you that this is dramatically simple. It is, it is simply pressing a button and the airplane transforming. So I have a 20-year-old and a 10-year-old. I know all about Transformer movies. Seriously, you press a button, hands off, it transforms on its own into the stealth mode. You, you push forward on a stick to go down, you pull forward to go back, you move the throttle forward to advance, or you bring it back to reverse yourself. And everything can be done virtually 
hands-off flying it. So measured, imagine, Harrier, remarkably difficult to fly, a great capability to an F-35 40 years later that is incredibly simple to fly. And um, with the, the vectored thrust, obviously, this aircraft has got, it's obviously working in conjunction with the, with the extra fan that it's got to, to achieve that. It's a great engineering story of a lift fan that's spooled up behind the pilot's head mm. as the doors open, run by a, a transmission into the front of the engine itself to do all that. Yeah. All of that is about landing and taking off. The secret of the jet, as we said yeah. in the beginning, is not about kinematics. It's about a, the level of information that is presented to me, the pilot, on the heads-up display, or my, my helmet-mounted display, this helmet that is a lot like Tony Stark in the Iron Man yeah. movies that we've all seen, <laughs> not to trivialize it, but I, the level of information that is given to me, the fidelity of information from the sensors that are fused together is wildly more uh, sensitive and um, more precise than anything I could have ever cobbled together as a pilot trying to figure out what was presented to me in a Hornet or a Typhoon or a Viper. So it's basically a wish list of everything every fighter pilot's ever asked for is you know, coming into this generation of fighters, obviously. Think about iPods and the iPhone generation, and we're used to have everything in front of us. Sensor fusion takes all the sensors we have in the F-35 to give us not just coverage out front like a radar in a legacy F-18 or a Super Hornet, but 360 degrees, spherical, yeah. so that we see everything on the ground, yep. on the sea, and in the air, fused in a single picture for the pilot to prosecute. I don't care that the information came from my electro-optical sensors or from my radar. What I care is that there's a track presented in front of me, and I need to deal with that. And that kind of information was first presented in the F-22 Raptor. We watched 10 years of total dominance in the air by the F-22 to know that sensor fusion is the way forward to us. We talked a little bit before we started here about the helmet, and of course there's been a couple of issues. Now you're in a very good position to be able to talk about helmet issues because uh, I understand while you were with the Typhoon, you were plugged into that machine like a symbiotic cyborg in a way and uh, used to test a lot of interesting helmet gear. So the helmet is a the helmet, it's a great question because the binocular helmet, that means two cameras giving to the pilot with two eyes, a, a screen in front of them, that was difficult to do. And in Typhoon, in my time as the helmet guy, I could never get past it. The F-35 helmet-mounted display is essential to how we wish to operate this airplane because we want the pilot to have that information. And we've worked, it's a we worked in a great engineering story through our hurdles now to get to a point just recently where we flew it day and night off the USS Wasp, which is a marine amphibious carrier, the Stovall variant, taking off day and night with all the cameras and everything working in the helmet to operate completely at night autonomously. And to me, that's a great uh, uh, graduation exercise to yeah. prove that we've got past our hurdles in the helmet and we've matured it enough. I'll tell you that. More than 150 pilots have flown the F-35. Every single pilot has said they will never fly again without the helmet. It's that good. <laughs> Doesn't carry too much of a weight penalty for you, particularly it's the, on a G-Lo? Yep. So it's, it, it lives within the weight that we're used to in the helmets that exist today. The secret is balancing the optics and controlling where the center of gravity is. My hands move because the center of gravity is just above your cheekbones. And the secret is to balance those optics so that you don't feel it want to lean too far forward and too far back. I wear my helmet for eight hours at a time yep, wow. in, my, in my job as a test pilot, and I can tell you that I, I don't deal with any of those issues that were present in the early generation helmets. Well, 
Willie, thank you very much. We've uh, exceeded our time by a bit, so thank you so much for uh, having a chat with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me Thanks for coming here. on the show, mate. Pleasure, mate. Excellent. Graham Bentley, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. It's a pleasure to be here. Cool. Now, uh, you're the uh, Lockheed rep here in Australia. Yes, I am. Uh, I had uh, 30 years in the Air Force and uh, left the Air Force in 2008 and joined Lockheed Martin, uh, mainly to concentrate on the F-35 activity. So what got you into the Air Force to begin with? Uh, Well, my dad was in the Air Force, so I grew up uh, going around all Australia, um, seeing different types of aeroplanes and seeing the Air Force life. Uh, Loved it, and so joined the Air Force and uh, had 35 years in the Air Force. Excellent. And what did you fly in the Air Force? Um, mainly P3s, uh, the Orion surveillance, uh, over-the-water surveillance aeroplane, uh, and I flew those with the Canadian Air Force and the United States Navy. So you've uh, seen a well. lot of ocean. Uh, seen a hell of a lot of ocean. <laughs> Just over uh, five and a half thousand hours airborne, wow. so it's a long time. Yeah, that's a lot of time in, in those. So, uh, it's for a lot of Lockheed, I guess. Um, <laughs> a lot of Lockheed product, um, and that's something that's uh, that's changed about the company. Um, Lockheed has been in this country since the Second World War. Um, C-130 started here in Australia in 1958. P-3 started here in Australia in 1968. Um, But we haven't had a big presence. Um, That changed about three to five years ago. And we're now a growing company in Australia. We've got just over 700 people in Australia, another 250 people in New Zealand. Um, We're expanding and we continue to expand into other areas as well. Quite diverse areas that uh, people... People don't expect of um, an aeroplane company, um, wave energy, um, trains, um, taxation, um, ICT, um, air traffic control radars, you name it, we do it. I should talk to you about trains things as I drive them for a living, but uh, <laughs> we might talk about that well, another time. So how did you go from flying the P3s for Australia and then to Canada and so on? What, what came after that? Because, you know, obviously you uh, progressed to the mahogany bomber. Um, yes, I did, unfortunately. Uh, I, I came up through the system. Uh, I eventually got to command the group that flies uh, the P3s. Um, uh, and for my sins, I then got to go to uh, Iraq uh, to command the uh, the forces, or the Australian forces over in uh, the Middle East in 2003. And I spent uh, seven months over there as the commander. It was a, um, a, a trying but very fascinating time. Uh, an interesting uh, situation. So that was bringing together everyone over there, not just... That was the uh, bringing together the whole of the Australian uh, Air Force, um, the Army uh, and the uh, the Navy forces wow. that I commanded over there. Um, and then um, came back to Australia and we formed a new group uh, called Surveillance and Response Group, uh, which combined both the aircraft uh, and the P3s, um, the AWACS, um, AEW and C aeroplanes, and all the ground radars that we use for um, uh, fighter intercept and for the long range warning, uh, gently over the horizon radar. So uh, a lot of lot of time looking after that, and then. Again, uh, because I must have been in the right place at the right time, I got to go and spend three years in the embassy in Washington, uh, which was another highlight of the career. Wow. Yeah. That was the air, air attaché? That was the air, as the air attaché over in Washington, uh, which was a great time and really enjoyed it. Uh, got to work very much with the, uh, the US Air Force over there um, and kept my uh, relationship with the F-35 um, going as well. There's been so much talk about the F-35, and I guess when any new airframe such as this comes along, there's a huge lead time, a huge development time. 
lot of discussion about was this the right aircraft for Australia? Why is this the right aircraft for Australia? Um, Australia has always uh, needed um, a multi-role aeroplane. Um, Australia is a small country. It, it's always benefited by having the highest and the best technology that's available. Um, we punch above our weight because we've got very well-trained people and we fly the best of uh, the capabilities that's around the world. This jet is going to be the best fighter uh, for the next 20 to 30 years, um, no doubt about it. Um, it's something that Australia needs. Uh, we need to be part of that first 11, um, if you want to put it in, uh, in a cricketing term, and we need to be able to uh, fight with the best of the people, um, to be able to defend Australia and to make sure that uh, the people of Australia are safe. And there's a lot of talk about interoperability with this platform. Obviously, uh, so many other nations that we're allied with are using it. I guess that's a big advantage. Not only uh, our allies, but uh, a number of European countries. And what we're seeing more and more is um, our friends and neighbours and, and allies in the Asia-Pacific. Uh, Japan has signed on for uh, 40 aeroplanes so far. Um, we expect uh, Korea to go through the process uh, in the next little while. Uh, and there are some other countries in this region as well they're actually uh, getting on board with the program. So there'll be a lot of F-35s flying around uh, Asia uh, and Australia in the future. So uh, you're primarily focused on the F-35. Uh, I imagine that will see you pretty busy for the next uh, five years or so. Uh, yes, we're, uh, we're taking delivery of the first uh, Australian aeroplanes uh, later, later this year, about the middle of the year. Um, Australia will start doing its pilot training and its maintainer training in the US. Um, we'll build up a, a core of aeroplanes there. And then in around about 2018, um, we'll bring a, uh, almost a squadron's worth of uh, aeroplanes back uh, over a short period so the squadron can stand up and start flying the aeroplanes in Australia. So that's going to be, once it's back here in Australia, we're going to have to have all the support, logistics, networks, I imagine. That's and that's what, that's what will take place over the next uh, four years. Um, the project team, and uh, we work closely with the project team, is, is standing up right, standing up all of those support aspects now and, and making sure that everything is in place, ready to go, so that when we bring the aeroplanes home, we can start training the pilots and the maintainers in Australia um, and making sure that everything's ready to go. Are you able to talk about what kind of logistics base you're going to have here? Um, the the government has decided that the main uh, base will be in Williamtown, um, and so we will set up uh, an appropriate uh, capability up in uh, Williamtown. One of the things that uh, this aeroplane has been designed to do is be much more sustainable, so easier uh, to service, uh, a lot less work. It's, it's like uh, most modern cars compared to cars 30 years ago. Um, the technicians that work on this aeroplane are more computer technicians. Uh, we still have engineers and, and, and others because there are still all those circuits. But this is a very different aeroplane to, to previous aeroplanes. I mean, the cockpit is probably a classic example. You'll see on most fighters that the cockpit opens towards the rear of the aeroplane. Um, what that does is that when you have to change the ejection seat, you have to take the canopy off. So it creates more work both before you do your, your needed work and then after you do your needed work to do it. With this aeroplane, the cockpit, uh, the canopy opens towards the front of the aeroplane. That way the ejection seat can be taken out without having to take the canopy off. So people have sat down and thought, how do I need to maintain this aeroplane? How do I put the boxes that need to be serviced more often in the right place so that I can get them easy? Um, how do I 
think about all the things that you have to do so you can uh, make it easier to work on it. I can see that. I can uh, see a whole sea of um, maintainers coming up in the future who will be very thankful for that because I know I've seen a lot of guys maintaining aircraft with their legs in the air and their head in the floor of the cockpit and well, bits everywhere. It, it's something we've done with the factory where we build the airplanes as well. Um, We've modelled the factory in uh, Fort Worth in Texas along a car assembly uh, type process. So it's a moving line. And instead of having guys working on their back and crawling around on their knees, most of the work is at standing height um, so that people can stand there and work on the the piece of equipment they're working on. We can adjust the equipment up and down um, and we can rotate the equipment so people don't have to get on their back and get into awkward positions. So a lot of thought... uh, has gone into the production as well to make it a lot easier. There is a lot more um, automation. Um, Most of the drilling for the wings, for instance, is all done by machinery um, with very little uh, human hands on. And I suppose in these, uh, particularly lately here in Victoria, where there's been so much doom and gloom around manufacturing sorts of jobs and those sorts of things, I guess that, you know, this this is an opportunity now to bring a new skill set into Australia, I guess. Yes, it is. Um, And in fact, uh, one of the companies that uh, we're working with uh, called Morand Engineering, uh, a Melbourne company, started uh, way back, uh, it's a family company. They started in the automotive industry. Um, They're now expanding and moving to the high technology of, of aircraft production. Fantastic. Fantastic. One more question I guess before we go. Um, Airframe AU1 as we record this at the start of March how is that progressing? Uh, it's progressing quite well. Um, we'll probably see the engine go in in the next uh, month or so. Um, it then goes through some from final finishes making sure that all of the paintwork and everything works uh, and then towards the middle of the year we'll start seeing it out in the flight line and, and doing some flying. Fantastic. Look forward to that. Cool. Pleasure. Thank you very much mate. Appreciate Thanks. your time. Stephen Over from Lockheed Martin. You're, you're the Director of International Business Development for the F-35 project? That's correct. During the presentation you gave us earlier, you were talking about um, a lot of the component manufacturing that's going on around the world, um, particularly here in Australia. Do you want to give us a quick run-through of all the components of the F-35 that are being uh, being manufactured here? Uh, first, Australia is one of eight partner nations for the F-35. So in 2002, Australia joined up and, and actually participated in the development uh, of the this fifth generation transformational aircraft. Now, one of the many benefits that came with being a partner is that Australian industry had a chance to compete to be part of the F-35 global supply chain. And so uh, over time, we've awarded contracts to now 14 different individual Australian companies, manufacturing companies that are producing parts of the F-35. There are a number of very fine manufacturing companies, you know, notables, Morand uh, in in the Melbourne area. So Morand, uh, later this month, will be producing the first of 722 vertical tails that will be manufactured here in, in Australia. Now, you know, vertical tails doesn't sound like that that much, but these are significant aero structures that go on the F-35 aircraft, very complex mechanical parts. And those 722 vertical tails over 30-plus year life of this program will mean more than a billion U.S. dollars worth of revenue into Morand uh, uh, over this this uh, uh, the life of the of the manufacturing life of the F-35. You know, tr- tremendous manufacturing content for your industries here. So, in addition to getting this transformational capability, Australian industry is going to get a chance to uh, uh, f- you know to sustain skilled aerospace manufacturing jobs for the next 30 to 40 
years. Now that's 700 plus tails, obviously that's for more than just the Australian contingent of 100 aircraft that you know, we're currently looking at. So obviously uh, Miranda building those vertical stabilisers for all the F-35s that are projected to be built, is that the case? That's, that's absolutely true. So people that are building parts for the airplane, you know, this, this is one of the things that differentiates the F-35 from traditional programs inside the United States. The traditional airplane program, F-16, F-18, that's sold internationally for many countries will have a component that's sometimes called offset. Mm. Industrial participation for the F-35 is not offset. The uh, the industries get a chance to compete. They have to maintain best value, so it's not an entitlement. Uh, you've seen the, the pressures that are on us to reduce the unit recurring flyaway price of the airplane. Uh, we're we're dependent upon our supply chain to partner with us and uh, and help us achieve those economies of scale and the reductions in pricing between the U.S. Uh, three services, United States Air Force, United States Marine Corps, United States Navy, and the eight partner nations. They are planned to buy over 3,100 F-35s. In addition to that, we expect there to be additional international sales through the foreign military sales process. If you look at the examples of like our, our fourth generation legacy fighter, the F-16, uh, we are about to deliver the 4,600th aircraft. Uh, we've been producing F-16s now for over 40 years, mm. and uh, we fully expect that the F-35 will be that type of program, uh, uh, you know, so looking out decades into the future. And there'll be a little bit of Australia in every one of those F-35s that are built. So if we get to the 1,300-plus numbers and so on, um, all the twin vertical tails will be built by Morand here in Melbourne, as long as they keep meeting targets. And stuff. Not all of them. Uh, so, yeah. so BAE, uh, British, uh, British Aerospace, uh, out of uh, the UK, is one of our principal industry partners. So they are uh, allocating a portion of their work content, that number 722, uh, to Moran. Now, I'll, I'll focus on another element of the airplane. So there's a fine manufacturing company up in the Brisbane area, Farah, that produces, among other things, uh, heavy weapons adapters that go in the weapons bay uh, on the aircraft. And they do that under some contract to a company called Marvin Engineering in the United States. They will build 90% of the weapons adapters across every F-35 that's ever produced. And so it's uh, not a terribly complex part, but there's significant work content there for Australian industry. And, you know, it's, it's, it's with great sadness that I've watched what's happened to Australian manufacturing uh, over the last year, you know, with, uh, particularly in the automobile industry with first Ford, then Holden, and then Toyota all announcing that they're going to cease manufacturing operations here in Australia. So, uh, you know, at a time when your manufacturing industries are so challenged, here's a great news story where skilled aerospace workers in Australia are going to be employed for, for decades to come producing parts for the F-35. Lockheed Martin, as you were saying about BAE, this, you've subcontracted to a company responsibility. They share the load across multiple subcontracts to build. So, of course, the more there are, the more chance there is of those contractors getting more work. But I imagine that work is not just, it's not like you're contracted to do 700, it's guaranteed. It's it's more the, the tail sets, for example. You're um, doing it in batches, so I imagine that the, the contracts are awarded in batches. Um, we know we've got these coming up, and as each one's sealed, right, You've got 20 aircraft, you've got 100 aircraft, please make that many batches. Is that how it works? That's, that's precisely how it works. So uh, the United States government awards us contracts on an annual basis. We're just within a few months of concluding contract negotiations for low-rate initial production lot number eight. And as soon as that contract has been awarded, we'll immediately turn around to our supply chain and award subcontracts 
to, uh, uh, in the case of Australia here, mm-hmm. the Australian companies will be manufacturing parts that go on our rip jets. For instance, you've got uh, Levitt do some parts quick step. Um, up in Sydney, yes. around in Melbourne. There seems to be quite a list of people in Melbourne. It's, it's, uh, it's 14 companies. When you look at a map of Australia, they're, they're located, as you would expect, in your, your manufacturing centres. Uh, Victoria, around the Melbourne area, has, has a significant number of them. Uh, a few in Adelaide, the Sydney area with Quickstep uh, in Bankston, and then uh, Farrah up in Brisbane area. What was your career path to get to where you're at at the moment? How did you wind up with Lockheed Martin? Well, I, I have always been an aviation nut, uh, enthusiast, I, uh, perhaps is a better word for it. Uh, we're, we're nuts. It's and, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, so being at the air show at Point Cook uh, mm. over the weekend was, was really uh, very personal to me. You had a pretty big uh, smile, as I recall. Uh, yes, for a number of reasons, a number of really, really neat historic aircraft uh, that were operational there. But what a huge honor that the Royal Australian Air Force is using our product to bookend the historic moment of 100 years of RAF aviation, mm-hmm. starting with the Bristol Box Kite uh, in March of 2000, excuse me, 1914, yep. and uh, later this year, concluding with the first flight of, uh, we call it AU-1, <laughs> the first Australian F-35. So with your being an aviation nut, did you do a career path of engineering or did you do any flying of your own? I uh, did flying of my own. So I, I uh, uh, achieved my private pilot's license as a young teenager in high school uh, at the age of 17 and uh, did a, a, my own uh, private flying. I uh, led, I was a president of my collegiate aeronautics club at Oklahoma State University where I graduated with a degree in electrical engineering. I had the opportunity to work for a number of companies coming out of college and there was only one choice with General Dynamics working on the F-16 Fighting Falcon. So from there across to Lockheed Martin? Well, so General Dynamics was acquired uh, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, through a a series of acquisitions and is now today Lockheed Martin. Great. So from the F-16 to the F-35, onwards and upwards. That's exactly right. What an exciting opportunity. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Billy Flynn, welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under. Uh, Not outside, we're inside now, but it's almost as noisy as it was on the flight line. How are you doing? Grant, thanks for having me here. We uh, we had a quick chat with you on the flight line in front of the F-35 mock-up. We're now here uh, inside at the uh, cockpit demonstrator. A couple of questions just to push on a bit more from what we spoke about the other day related to the helmet. Now, we spoke briefly about centre of gravity and so on, but you hinted to me that uh, you've done a lot of work on helmets. Are you able to uh, run us through all the work that you've done on helmets? Because obviously your first introdu- introduction to one was flying the classic Hornet. That would have been a, a pretty standard helmet with just visor, or was there anything much more on it at the time? Well, the re- my first introduction to helmet-mounted displays was as a test pilot on Eurofighter Typhoon. Okay. And uh, that's where I came to understand how difficult the notion of having a binocular full display presented in front of the pilot was in terms of human factors. Imagine that a human cares about the the weight of whatever is on his head, but what he really cares about is that that weight is balanced properly uh, over his head. The center of gravity for for our heads is uh, slightly above the cheekbone, Mm -hmm. and you have to balance the optics, so the cameras and all the electronics evenly around the surface of the helmet so you do not destabilize the helmet from that center point that we're all expecting to see. And if you do that, it is remarkably uncomfortable and our necks are incredibly sensitive to it being unbalanced. My experience in developing Typhoon's helmet was exactly that. It was really, really hard to balance the optics and the electronics. 
once we get past that, then the secret is presenting a display that is useful to the pilot and not just simple information. So expect that I, I want to see uh, kinematic information. How fast, how high am I going? What's my attitude? What heading am I at? What are my weapons telling me that I need to pay attention to? But I also want useful information. In the case of the F-35, we present infrared imagery up on the display for the pilot to see. We use a system known as the Distributed Aperture System, or DAS, a short form, that is seamed picture from six flush-mounted mid-wave IR cameras that are in the skin of the airplane. It builds a, a ball, if you will, a, a sphere around me that wherever I look, I get this imagery in front of me. To put all that together and get it on the pilot's head so it's perfectly balanced, not too heavy, and is incredibly finessed in terms of the precision of the picture is remarkably difficult yeah, to do. Yeah. Now, I imagine with the Typhoon, you would have gone through many iterations. About how many flights would you have done trialing different things? Was it like over a year or two, or was it? I flew Typhoon as a prototype mm. test pilot, experimental test pilot, for four years. And I spent four years working with a test aircraft in Boscombe down in the United Kingdom, trialing different versions of the helmet iteration. That, so that was early in Typhoon's lots, days. Lots of it's uh, many years hence, and they have a helmet that many of the pilots fly with than Typhoon. Our helmet in the F-35 is different, yep. more advanced, uh, again, from what I tested in Typhoon. Where would you rate, um, for instance, we've currently got the joint queuing system uh, that we're using in the Super Hornets, retrofitting a version to the Classics. That, If we called that a position A, Typhoon would be slightly above that or about on par with that kind of helmet? In fact, I fly with a joint helmet mounted queuing system in the F-16 Block 50s and 60s that I fly back in Fort Worth, Texas. So I'm pretty familiar with okay. Jahemix yep. and flying with that. Jahemix is a monocular helmet-mounted display, which means one eye, one camera feeds one eye that gives the information to the pilot. And it's r incredibly effective, both air-to-air -air and air-to-ground, especially when we add in data-linked information for the pilot to see. Uh, but it's limited. So limited in, in terms that I'm looking through just one eye, not two. And I don't have the DAS imagery that makes me so much more aware, so much so much more effective in terms of SA, situational yep. awareness, that I have an F-35. So okay. if Jamex is my start point, uh, typh the Typhoon helmet is a step up, but the F-35 helmet that I fly now is an order of magnitude yeah. more sophisticated Massively. than anything that is out there today. And for us, DAS is the most interesting of the sensors that we have encountered in our development of F-35. The situational awareness, when I'm flying at 30,000 feet and able to look from horizon to horizon, 217 miles from, what, from where I'm at my cockpit to the horizon, and what I see as I scan my head around, uh, around and then through the structure of the airplane, because those cameras are bedded, embedded on the outside of the airplane so that I'm flying as if the airplane structure was not there. What I see is phenomenally effective in building my situational awareness. Yep. Not just stuff on the ground, but in the air. I see everything that's uh, um, hot enough mm. to be of interest to my system. It detects, identifies, and tracks 
targets in the air and on the ground based on their heat signature. And that builds that big picture that I need to see in my t- tactical situation display in the cockpit. And of course, it's using modern sensors like we've, we've seen the progression of the Sidewinder where first you had to shoot it from directly behind to get the, the look up the exhaust pipe nice and hot. And now you can actually shoot from any aspect and it'll pick up the residual heat of the aircraft fuselage. It's a great so, leading question too. Remember that wherever I move my head in the F-35, whenever the missile is loaded on the outboard wing stations, I'm slewing a high aspect off boresight missile with me. I look, point and shoot. We've come to understand exactly how lethal high off boresight missiles are mm. in today's visual combat arena. Well, I like your description. It's definitely a, um, a Tony Stark kind of feel. Iron Man to the max. Be very careful with that helmet. It's, it's, it's very precise. Don't be throwing that in the corner and <laughs> ruining your opportunity to go flying. Well, especially as you said, the, the um, foam inset inside the helmet is actually carved specifically for each pilot. It's really fascinating. Because this um, imagery is so precise, the helmet does not move on my head. To get a helmet that I can wear for eight hours at a time that fits me perfectly, is comfortable and is not too hot and allows itself to sit precise, not move, allow me to have the presentation I see, means that you have to, in our case, laser scan each individual's head and then have an insert to the helmet, so my liner that fits me absolutely perfect every time I put it on and I don't need to be spending time adjusting. So it's fascinating to me. I wear the jet eight hours at a time as a test pilot and it works every single time I put it on my head. It has taken some time for us to get the helmet as finessed as we want, but there are more than 150 pilots that have now flown the F-35, and every single pilot says that he will never fly without the helmet again. Now, remember that I I would never expect to dogfight an F-35 like we remember from Tom Cruise and Val (laughs) Kilmer in Top Gun. The lethality with a low-observable, air-dominant airplane like an F-35 is that I will shoot and kill everyone out there long before they ever knew I existed, and I'll be gone. If I get myself into a visual fight, then I have completely negated the extraordinary advantage that I had walking into the fight. And we know with the F-35, the secret to our future is leveraging the tactics that have been developed and finessed by the F-22 fleet, Mm. the other fifth-generation fighter, and what they have learned in now the 10 years of operational employment of that airplane. I I do believe that we've corrected all, uh, uh, finessed the airplane, the helmet enough that when you maneuver aggressively in an airplane that can pull 9G, that can slow down to 50 degrees angle attack, you will be comfortable in the presentation of the helmet and as you wear it. It'll be balanced, it doesn't yeah. weigh too much, and you'll be happy with how the helmet behaves on your head. I would never expect us, not to say it won't happen, don't say never, but our role is not to be down low in the weeds okay. where someone can negate our advantage with some sort of air defense on his shoulder. Our advantage is to use the precise sensors on board the airplane to execute and prosecute from a sanctuary where we can't be seen or touched. And and that includes missions like close air support. Now, one last bit on the helmet was the, um, as you mentioned in the the briefing, there was the, um, you'd encountered issues with the jitter and the latency and so on. They've all been corrected in the helmets. As as Steve was saying, there's no more version B, so it's all all full steam ahead with this helmet, yeah? Two parts of the, the, to answer that question, really, sorry, three parts. First part is we took the helmet on the USS Wasp and we did short takeoffs and vertical landings day and night and we used the helmet as the primary aid at night. 
That to me is a graduation ceremony that proves the capability of the helmet hovering and landing on a ship moving at night. Uh, the second part is that we have committed to a single helmet as a program that gives us the confidence that the path forward is using this airplane. Third part is that the Gen 3 helmet uh, that we people, my compatriots and I have tested, works as we expect it to work, and that's the helmet that we'll wear in the future. Okay, well, Billy, thanks once again for coming back and having a bit more of a chat with us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for taking the time to have me. Navigate the long white cloud with Oz Runways. Oz Runways now has full support for New Zealand with VFR and IFR maps and all AIP volumes. Our intuitive interface makes Oz Runways the easiest to use electronic flight bag on the market. And unlike older products, everything you need is included in a simple annual subscription. So you're always up to date. Find out why Oz Runways has been the number one iPad electronic flight bag in Australia for over three years. Find Oz Runways on the iTunes store for a free download and a free one month trial. Upgrade your iPad to the best EFB. Try Oz Runways today. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. As pilots, we're always looking for ways to improve our proficiency and skills. And one of the best ways to achieve that is using a flight school dedicated to advanced skills training. In the Sydney area, that choice is the Australian Aerobatic Academy. From ab initio, advanced handling techniques, upset recovery training, right through to full aerobatic ratings. The Australian Aerobatic Academy provides thorough and professionally delivered courses to suit every pilot. And with bases at Bankstown and Wollongong, they've got Sydney covered. Go to aeroacademy.com.au to find out more or call 0404 065 201. The Australian Aerobatic Academy, taking your proficiency to the next flight level. Hi, this is Leo Laporte of This Week in Tech and the Twit Network. You know, we don't do any aviation podcasts, thank goodness. I wouldn't want to compete with Steve in Australia's premier aviation podcast, Plane Crazy Down Under! Air Vice Marshal Kim Osley, welcome to Playing Crazy Down Under. Grant, thank you very much. Good to be here. You're very heavily involved in uh, integrating the F-35 into the RAF, so we're going to have a great chat on that one today, but I thought I'd just start it off by saying how you got into the RAF. Uh, I believe you started back in the late 70s. Grant, I did, and I actually wanted to join the Air Force from a very young age. In fact, my earliest recollections, probably age four or five, were of um, uh, pictures on the wall of my great uncle who flew Wellingtons, and I had an interest in aviation from the start. The normal thing, uh, lots of little model aeroplanes, and, and the ones who got shot down had balls of uh, cotton out the back as smoke and that, and, uh, and then I progressed from that to uh, aeromodelling and then into the air cadets, and finally I decided that uh, it was going to be a career in the Air Force or nothing, so uh, I guess my parents um, were hoping that they would get a, a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer or something like <laughs> that, but they, they ended up getting an Air Force uh, uh, officer. I believe you, um, after doing the, the flight training and so on, you wound up as an air combat officer with F-111s. I did, and so I, um, I found that uh, I initially joined the Air Force Academy to train as a pilot, and my instructors uh, very early on uh, told me that they didn't have enough aircraft in the Air Force for me to, to actually be a pilot. I was uh, landing short and long and uh, doing everything but uh, actually uh, <laughs> positioning 
him myself for a, a, a distinguished or a, a, an appropriate arrival on the runway. But they offered me uh, any other category I would like to go to. And I, I certainly at the time was known as navigator, but now air combat officer. And I jumped at that opportunity uh, and really enjoyed NAP course and went to F-111s off course, which was uh, a great buzz. I was lucky enough to be on uh, F-111s for a few years. And then they sent me to the US to fly on an even older aircraft, the Phantom. And I flew Phantoms uh, in the over in the United States Air Force for uh, a few years in the late 1980s. And then uh, back to the RAF and continue on for a while before it was off to the Mahogany Bomber, yeah? That's right. I, uh, I actually had a, a quite a, uh, a lucky career. I managed to uh, do a, two stints as a flight commander and then I did some ground jobs in between, but uh, become commanding officer of one squadron and then officer commanding 82 wing and then commander air combat groups. I managed to serve at all the ranks in the command positions and then alternated that by going to capability development for my early part of my career and then uh, Air Force planning as the uh, Air Force strategic planner. And then it, later in my career, I sort of branched out into military diplomacy and I ended up uh, serving over in the United Kingdom as the air ad advisor to the RAF for a couple of years and then more recently as head of defense staff in Washington. So I've had a really great number of tours and very interesting uh, and all very diverse. But I must say that my first love has always been flying and remains flying. I can understand that being behind a desk just that doesn't quite do it quite the same way as being in the air, but uh, it sounds like you've certainly made enough contacts everywhere, uh, both from your time flying in the USAF and also being uh, over in Washington and so on. So I guess that uh, has put you in a good position to wind up being involved in the F-35 project. When did you start involvement with that one? In earnest, it was um, really when I was head of defence staff in Washington, and uh, I started as HADS in uh, 2008. But my involvement with the F-35 went back to my time as officer commanding uh, 82 wing, and also in a position in capability development as a one-star, where I worked for David Hurley. So in 2003-2004 uh, as officer commanding 82 wing, and 2004-5 and 2006 when I worked for David Hurley as uh, looking at the future capabilities that we needed in the Australian Defence Force when he was chief of Capability Development Group. I really got involved in the uh, F-35 program in a uh, quite a deep way back then. But uh, when I went to Washington in uh, 2008, I um, ended up, of course, quite often being involved in discussions about the F-35 because it was, in fact, uh, of course, at the time, the largest program we were proposing to um, be involved in. And, of course, it was a very interesting time in the program, 2008, 2009, and 2010, while I was over in the US. It was probably no surprise to me that when I was coming back home, the Chief of Defence Force at the time, uh, Air Chief Marshal Angus Houston, suggested that I would be a good person to go in as the program manager of new air combat capability and a job which I really enjoyed. And uh, I, I had that job for three years before coming to Air Force's uh, head of capability transition. But yeah, my involvement has uh, certainly been uh, long and probably approaching 10 years now, I think. I believe you've just returned from a stint doing project management with the DMO. Correct. So I, um, uh, when I came back from uh, the US at the end of 2010, I took up that position as uh, the program manager and had a, uh, a team of people over a new air combat capability program that I looked after. And we, at the main job we had, of course, was to um, it was actually twofold, and that was to progress the project and to proceed with the uh, procurement of the first two aircraft and also all the support equipment associated with it, get ready for the procurement of the next 12. But at the same time, also trying to get the program through second pass 
for the next tranche of aeroplanes, which of course was recently announced. While all that was going on, the other, I guess, mandate that I had over in as program manager new air combat capability was to get good industry outcomes for Australian industry, which I think um, we've also uh, made quite a bit of progress on over the last few years. You know, we've had recent announcements by uh, companies such as uh, Morand down in Melbourne that make the vertical tails. We've had Ferra up in Queensland that has uh, had great success at making weapons adapters for the F-35. We've got Cameron down in Victoria again at Lara that is uh, looking at bidding for manufacturer of flares for the F-35 and other companies, probably 20 or 30 of them around Australia that have had success to date or are in the process of bidding for work uh, during the acquisition phase. For you, it's got to be wonderful, I guess, that it's all come together and now we're actually going ahead and it's, it's coming through. Certainly as a uh, person who's been around the air combat uh, area for a, a long time, I I guess coming up to three decades of, of experience uh, around fast jets, this is, a, I guess, the uh, crowning piece of my career If I, uh, to actually set up, I guess, the next generation of fast jet aeroplanes. It's, I guess, a rare privilege that uh, I've been given and uh, I've enjoyed it greatly. But I certainly realise, too, that I'm only um, taking it a small step down the process. Uh, the real challenge will, of course, be coming over the coming decade when we actually get the aeroplanes and we have to bring them into service and the workforce has to be trained up and we have to have the right number of pilots and all that so the transition into service is a, a very challenging piece so I'm not taking uh, all the credit in any way shape or form I, <laughs> I I just picked up the ball and I ran it 10 yards and I'm very pleased that I was allowed to pick up the ball. Well that's an excellent segue into the meat and potatoes of this discussion about integrating the F-35 with the RAF and let's start off right at the first point of training said pilots. We've had our first two uh, RAF pilots nominated of course squadron leader Andrew Jackson and squadron leader David Bell. We got to meet them at point Cook and they're the first two pilots. Of course, there's a lot more. My understanding is that uh, we're actually the first country that's going to be setting up operations at Luke Air Force Base for the F-35. Is that correct? That is correct. We uh, Australia will be the first international partner to move into Luke Air Force Base for the F-35 training. Uh, Luke Air Force Base, as you well know, is uh, already a major F-16 training base and has uh, a lot of international air forces operating from it. As far as the F-35 school goes, uh, we'll be the first one. We expect uh, that uh, uh, Andrew Jackson and David Bell will, well, in fact, uh, Andrew Jackson will head across at the end of this year and then start his course uh, early next year. He'll actually initially train down at Eglin Air Force Base, merely because um, the uh, the training system de- down there is a little bit more mature, so they'll put him through the tr- the pilot training course on the F-35 down at uh, Eglin. And then as soon as he finishes that course, he'll then move up to Luke Air Force Base, where our two aircraft will be inducted into an American squadron up there. The Australians are going to be teamed with the 61st Fighter Squadron at uh, Luke Air Force Base. The other international partners, when they arrive, will be teamed with another squadron. So Australia will be the only international partner in the 61st, and then, of course, the 62nd or whatever the other squadrons are will then partner with countries such as the Netherlands and Italy and Turkey and other countries as they come online for their training. We already have one of our young uh, officers across there, not a pilot, and we have an engineering officer over there, squadron leader Nathan Draper, and he goes by the call sign of Bullet. And uh, Bullet's been across in the U.S. now for a few months and he's setting up the arrangements at Luke Air Force Base so that it'll be seamless when our aircraft turn up and our pilots turn up so they don't have to worry about some of the detail associated with moving into a new base and establishing themselves. So Nathan, prior to going across the US, was a long-term member of the new air combat capability here in Canberra, so he's got a lot of experience. 
And yeah, Andrew Jackson, Dave Bell, I believe, are um, uh, very much looking forward to heading over there. There was a little bit of competition between the two of them, I think, about who was first and who, who was second and all the rest of it. But I, <laughs> I think um, Jacko won out there. And, you know, as you know, Jacko is a very experienced fighter combat instructor. I've known him for many, yep. many, many years. And he is absolutely um, a thorough professional and exactly the sort of person you want to go in through the training and to sort of lead the, um, the charge into F-35 training. David Bell is uh, a very experienced uh, test pilot and of course while we won't have pilots necessarily flying in test F-35s, of course there's a lot of operational test and evaluation and a lot of assessment and analysis of the test results that will require the expertise that a test pilot has. So it's also very important that David head across and get that experience on the F-35 and then ultimately we'll be able to use him at various places within the uh, introduction of the F-35 into Australian service. Actually training up the pilots is a little bit counterintuitive you know you might imagine that you'd send a whole lot of experienced pilots over there to learn on the F-35 well actually what's going to happen is we're actually going to phase it so that we send our very experienced ones at the start who will then be the instructor we'll then train up our small numbers using our two aircraft over there over the coming years train up a small quorum of, uh, of instructors or pilots that can be instructors so that when we get close to setting up our first operational squadron when we're a year or two out we can then markedly ramp up the numbers of pilots we put through and at that point we'll probably get some people with less experience but still be F-18 pilots but with perhaps lesser experience to go through because at the end of the day what you really want in your first operational squadron is a real mix of experience you want to have a CO you want to have your experienced flight commanders and your FCIs and you also need to have some less experienced people as well. Yeah, a few nuggets as they, they refer yeah, to. You certainly don't want a squadron of older, very experienced <laughs> um, folk because, uh, of course, they'll all require posting out of their unit at the same time, which uh, wouldn't be terribly helpful yeah. to us. It'd be a brain drain back here, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. You mentioned the two aircraft that are over there. Are those aircraft, they're not likely to come back to Australia? They'll stay over there for training and use? The first two aircraft will be going straight into the 61st fighter squadron and they'll remain there for a number of years. The requirement is that you have aircraft in the training squadron at Luke. That is the only way that you can generate a pool of hours that you can then draw upon to train your pilots. So you won't see an F-35 in Australia until the, uh, towards the end of 2018 when uh, the first two aircraft will and then return back to Australia. The, the aircraft that return to Australia uh, may, or, uh, may or may not be those first two aircraft because, of course, we'll put two aircraft into uh, Luke. We'll use those to train over the next few years. Then as we buy more aircraft, they'll initially go into Luke Air Force Base and then from the end of 2018, we'll progressively start flying the aeroplanes back to Australia, starting with two at the end of 2018 and then more in 2019 and 2020 until we've got enough aeroplanes in Australia to uh, stand up an operational uh, squadron at the end of 2020 and also a training squadron. So 2OCU will, will convert to the F-35 at the end of 2020 as well. Eventually, training will be done in-house. So here in Australia, it's not like we're going to be always sending our pilots over to the USA for their training. That's absolutely correct. We are going to stand up our training capability in Australia. We're only using the F-35 training school at Luke until the end of 2020, at which time all aircraft and all people will return from Luke and all of the F-35 training for Australian squadrons will be done at Williamtown. The guys who are going through the early groups over in, in Luke, are they going to be doing the standard USAF training program, uh, which I believe runs about three months, has a whole lot of uh, sim classes and sim sessions and, and uh, training classes, and then you do one taxi session and six flights and you're ready to go. Uh, is that the standard program the guys will be following? Initially, we expect that our pilots will... Uh, 
in fact, our, our pilots will end up doing a cross-flow course on the F-35. So I'm not exactly familiar with exactly how many flights it is, but the United States Air Force operates uh, two levels of training. They have one for their ab initio pilots, so people that have been through pilot training and then through intro fighter course, they, they'll then go to the F-35, and those people that have um, never fl haven't flown another type of aeroplane will do um, an ab initio course, and it will be of similar duration to what you're talking about. Then the experienced United States Air Force uh, fighter pilots that have flown on the F-16 or the F-15 before, they'll do a, a slightly abbreviated course and it will still be very comprehensive but a bit more abbreviated than the ab initio one. And I anticipate that um, since we're only sending F-18 experienced pilots to train in the US, the ab initio pilots that we'll have will only start at uh, Williamtown uh, from 2021 onwards that we'll start putting okay. people through that course. So I imagine that we'll do a cross-flow type course over there. Of course, um, we're part of a uh, larger international group, and so in general, we will broadly follow the syllabus that the United States Air Force um, uses in the squadron. There will be a, a few minor changes to it, but uh, in the broad, we'll follow the cross-flow course. So there's nothing really specific about these aircraft that is unique to Australia that requires major changes or additions to the training? Uh, not at that level of training. So, you know, down track, of course, um, once we get to the early 2020s and the aeroplane takes on a greater number of roles, then there will be some unique training that the United States Air Force won't do. And an example might be that in Australia, the F-18 and prior to that, the um, F-111 obviously had a maritime strike role and our F-35s will ultimately have a maritime strike role and that role would be um, uh, Australia unique and we would end up incorporating that into our training course in the longer term, uh, which it won't be present in the United States Air Force course. For what we're using, the United States Air Force course, which is to train our pilots initially into the broad capabilities of the F-35 in air-to-air -air and air-to-ground, the United States crossway course is fine. Much and all as everyone focuses on uh, the pilots, the aircrew and, and so on, there's of course going to be quite a lot of new technology coming in. The aircraft is going to require its own maintenance environment, things like that. So I imagine that we're also going to be sending over a number of maintenance staff to do the, um, the courses. Has that already started or will they be following the pilots? With the maintenance staff, we are, um, at this point in time, the plan is that the majority of maintenance training will be done in Australia. So we're setting up a maintenance training school at Williamtown. There's already one there, of course, for the F-18s, and, and we'll transition that to the uh, F-35. It'll probably be run by a contractor, though, at, at Williamtown. The um, problem with using the United States Air Force or the U.S. Marine Corps or the U.S. Navy maintenance training in the, in the U.S. is that it isn't very congruent to the training that we have for our technicians in Australia. They have a lot more categories for their technical trades and they uh, tend to be a, a lot more specialised than our technicians yeah. are. So I'm not saying that they have a left main undercarriage expert and a right main undercarriage expert, but they certainly have a lot more <laughs> specialisation than we have. So therefore, it's very problematic to put our technicians through their technical courses. We would end up having our technicians having to undertake a lot of uh, training over there to cover the ground that they need to cover. So the plan at the moment is that we do need to get some experience on the F-35 for some of our senior maintenance folk. So we'll send perhaps 20 to 40 experienced maintenance technicians across to the US. Uh, they'll go across there in about 2017. They'll get the experience. They'll then come back to Australia and they'll form the initial cadre of instructors that we'll have at our maintenance training school at Rap Base Williamtown. They'll also form the initial cadre of senior NCOs and warrant officers for the uh, operational squadron when it stands up. We expect that they'll do some uh, courses over there, but uh, in the main, they'll already be quite experienced. They'll just be learning about the aircraft type. 
after they've uh, got the basic training, they'll go on the line at uh, learn a bit more and then uh, get a bit more experience with the F-35 and then put that into effect back in Australia at the school. Now, uh, the F-35 with its very sexy new helmet and so on, uh, is there uh, specific unique courses about that, um, extra information there? What, what level of, of skilling up is required to be able to look after that equipment? Probably not as much as you might imagine. The helmet is, of course, is very complicated and, and very expensive. You know, it's uh, probably three times as expensive as, uh, or twice as expensive as uh, the current uh, Jahamex on the F-18. I think in the broad, the skill set that you need for it is evolutionary for our life support technicians at uh, Rap Base Williamtown as opposed to uh, revolutionary. If I take um, parts of the uh, the pilot flying kit, the G suit, for example, you can actually fly in the F-35 quite comfortably with a, a normal legacy G suit. You don't need to have uh, the one that sort of uh, covers a large portion of your body that uh, is optional in the F-35. Okay. We're, we're yet to decide uh, really um, exactly the G suit, for example, that we want to get. But um, but then again, the technology in either, both of them is quite similar. The helmet, yes, it's got a you know a very advanced uh, you know sort of helmet-mounted display, and and it's um, far more capable than the the Jahamex. But again, uh, it really, you know, it's, it's still it's a projector system inside a visor and the test equipment will change and the number of tests will change, but the general principle probably won't. So I think uh, what we'll see happening is that we'll use contractors to initially set the helmet up for the pilots. So the uh, each pilot will, you know, be measured up and, and have the helmet fitted. And then that'll be done by the contractor. And then after that, it will be uniform folk that will just handle the day-to-day maintenance of it, the regular routine maintenance, and of course, um, servicing it while on deployments. A major contributor to uh, any training and keeping people current without the aircraft or just learning and making mistakes away from the aircraft are, of course, simulators, be they just uh, procedural simulators or full motion, things like that. Are we purchasing any um, cockpit and or maintenance simulators? We are, and uh, to a much larger extent than we have with traditional aeroplanes. A lot of the capabilities in the F-35 can really only be practiced in, uh, in a, a simulated environment. You know, the high-end electronic warfare, the high-end air-to-air, the high-end penetration of uh, threat systems on the ground and uh, air defences. So we will invest very heavily in uh, the simulated environment, uh, roughly four times the number of simulators to what we have now. So that is a, a significant investment. The pilots will also fly a, a commensurately larger number of hours in the simulator. So we are still expecting that they will get quite a high number of hours in the aircraft because you fly the aeroplanes not only for your own training, but you also fly the aeroplanes uh, to contribute to the training of other capabilities within the Australian Defence Force. So we will fly well in excess of 150 hours and uh, probably approaching 200 hours for the uh, more junior folk on the aeroplane. As well as that, we'll also have 50% of that number of hours in the simulator as well so it's quite a heavy load and with the simulators you don't have just one simulator you need to have a representative uh, formation of F-35s operating together to fully practice the tactics and uh, practice employing the system the way that it's meant to be employed so uh, in general uh, instead of people going one at a time to the simulator to uh, practice uh, emergency procedures or to do some basic um, perhaps going in a pair to practice um, 1v1s or something you'll actually have the F-35 simulators all filled up at the same time and probably linked together uh, practicing against each other and against uh, other representative threats so uh, it's a totally new way I think a new emphasis on simulation coming in with the F-35. On the maintenance side it's driven by a number of things Uh, the aeroplane really uh, should be uh, ready for flying or flying as opposed to being pulled apart uh, doing maintenance training yes you do need to have some aircraft that are used for 
practicing maintenance uh, training and honing skills. But in general, we'll be using a lot of computer-based training, a lot of uh, also a lot of simulators for doing some of the more routine, I guess, maintenance tasks such as weapons loading. So we'll have half an aeroplane uh, simulated with uh, a wing where people can come in and, and actually load up all the weapons uh, into the weapons bay where obviously most of the weapons are carried when it's in the stealthy mode. And also a cockpit ejection simulation as well where people will be able to uh, practice removing the ejection seat working inside the cockpit area. And as well as that, there's other smaller maintenance part task trainers and things that we'll be getting as well. All those simulators need to arrive in time for the start of F-35 operations at the end of 2018. I must say that uh, four-way link, link system set up, uh, it sounds like the best arcade game in the planet. <laughs> <laughs> it, it will be, and uh, I, I, we're already seeing that uh, the, uh, if I could uh, show my age a little bit, uh, you know, when I was young, we did our best to uh, not spend too much time in the simulator on the F-111 and to spend most of your time trying to get in the, into the air and... And obviously we had a simulator that had no visuals and that, but the mm -hmm. quality of the simulation now, you completely immerse yourself in it and it's uh, so realistic and, and it's such good training and so challenging that you actually have the aircrew wanting to get into the simulator to test out their uh, skills and to uh, try it in the high demanding environments that you can only get in uh, in a simulated environment. But you, you mentioned we're going to be bringing in ab initio to OCU end of 2018 and so on. We've got Air 5428 project underway, which is replacing the um, PC-9 and also potentially the uh, basic uh, introductory flight training through um, the CT-4s at uh, Tamworth. How is that being influenced by the F-35? Is what's happening with the F-35 rolling back into that project? The F-35 program has been going for obviously a decade now and uh, and the 5428 was fully aware of the requirements of the F-35 and so what 5428 brings when it comes into service will actually meet the F-35 requirement very well. We've had uh, a number of organisations do analysis of our training system, uh, both current and the one proposed under 5428, and we certainly meet the basic requirements for getting our pilots prepared and ready to fly in the F-35. The point that I will make is that with the Hawk, we originally set up the Hawk to replicate in many ways the uh, switchology and also the displays of the F-18. And I think that was a good idea and it's paid great dividends over the years. One might say, well, why don't we need to do that for the F-35? Really, the challenge in the F-35 isn't so much operating the systems or flying the aeroplane. Given my background as a, a trainee pilot, obviously I'm poorly uh, positioned to say this, but the F-35 is a relatively easy aeroplane to fly. It's a much more difficult aeroplane to take in the information, understand all the, uh, get a, a good appreciation of the situation and then make all the decisions. That, it's not a difficult aeroplane there, but it's, that's the greatest challenge in it, is to actually use the information to make your tactical decisions and interpreting that information and making those in a reasonable time frame. What we really want in the Hawk is just the ability to challenge people with their situational awareness, to challenge people with tactical thinking. And the Hawk, with 5428 uh, modifications and uh, with its new mission computers and better embedded training, will be able to do that. So uh, it, it doesn't have to look like an F-35, but it's just got to challenge the people coming through, the pilots coming through uh, with the right tactical scenarios and give them that experience.
We've spoken briefly about the uh, batches of F-35s that are coming in. The first two should be up and running soon in Luke Air Force Base for our boys to be training on. Then you've got the next batch of uh, 12 and, of course, the third batch of 58. There's quite a spread of purchase dates. They're going to be different uh, batch numbers. Will they be different block configurations? I would expect so. To all intents and purposes, uh, they won't be of different hardware configuration. We actually delayed buying our first two aircraft until we got to low-rate initial production number six, which is uh, aeroplanes being delivered this year, our first two aircraft. Low-rate initial production one through five was at a level of hardware called Technical Refresh 1. Prior to that, they actually had Technical Refresh 0, which was for a lot of the test aircraft. And so Technical Refresh 1 was the production hardware standard. They then did some modifications, uh, in increasing the, um, the size of the mission computers, making some other hardware changes to the aircraft. They're rolling those in from low-rate initial production 6, so all our aircraft will be of technical refresh 2 standard. That means that we really will have a homogeneous uh, fleet of uh, 100 aeroplanes that are all of the same tech refresh. Then, of course, as we go forward over time and get to the early 2020s, when we do a hardware update next time, we'll obviously go to Tech Refresh 3 in the early 2020s and then on on. It's not quite true that all the aeroplanes are identical because obviously as you go through uh, your low-rate initial production years, you're doing concurrent testing, uh, fatigue testing, concurrent testing of the hardware through the uh, JSF program office. And as you identify faults with the aeroplane uh, or uh, areas that could be improved in terms of um, the hardware, then they may roll those into a particular low-rate initial production. And of course, some of those have happened. So there are a few components in the aeroplanes that change between each of the low-rate initial production years. Now, this has always been the case. So you know, the F-111, as it went through, was changed in production. The F-18 was changed in production as it, from year to year to year. So there will be a few of those. But but of course, the good thing about that is those things don't need to be changed straight away. We can wait until we get to the next major servicing. And then if we wish to, we'll have a choice. We can either change them at the next major servicing or we can choose to not change them and just manage them as a slightly different component in some of the aeroplanes. But that is a relatively minor issue. To all intents and purposes, we're going to have tech refresh too. So uh, common hardware across the 100 aircraft. I guess if you do have ones that you decide, okay, we'll, we'll live with that and we won't um, expand this one, uh, they could be rolled into two OCU and used for training as opposed to frontline. It could. If it had any effect on the aeroplane itself, then as in its performance, then you could make that decision. At the moment, we're not seeing that, but uh, that, that would be a possibility. We've uh, mentioned RAF Base Williamtown up at Newcastle, mm. and uh, I believe that's the first base. Tinder will be the second. Is that correct? That's correct. Rap Base Williamtown will be uh, stood up in time to take the first operational squadron. In fact, it will be stood up with all the uh, capabilities necessary to operate the F-35 from the end of 2018. By the time you back that up and work out um, you know, when you need to go through the Public Works Committee, when you need to uh, start building it, when the building needs to be commissioned, when you need to start running the courses and standing up some of the IT systems, we're pretty much on the critical path right now. There's a lot to be done by the time the boys come back. Absolutely, and um, we were very pleased, of course, that the um, with the recent government approval for 58 aircraft and the support uh, infrastructure. That support infrastructure includes $1.6 billion for facilities, and uh, so that's where the majority of the facilities work is, uh, is being done. What changes are required? Like, uh, do you need to do any work on the ramps, taxiways, and runways at these airports, or uh, is that part staying standard? 
we will be extending uh, runways, uh, the runway at Williamtown, so we have a plan to uh, extend it so that the F-35 can do non-afterburner takeoffs and also um, to assist in um, mitigating the noise for the arrival. So that's uh, that's all part of the plan. Also, the ramps and taxiways at Williamtown will be changed. Effectively, what we're looking at is the current option that we uh, are putting to the Public Works Committee is for a greenfield site at Rap Base Williamtown. So halfway down the, the main runway uh, past where Wedgetail is now at Williamtown, would be uh, having an enclave in there for the F-35. So it would be new ramps, uh, new uh, shelters for the aircraft and also all new facilities. Part of the reason why uh, a greenfield site appeals at this point in time is that we obviously want to keep operating the F-18 for a number of years at the same time as the F-35. And to do that, um, you really can't afford to put a bulldozer through where the F-18s are now. If you, <laughs> It would obviously be a slight fodder hazard for the F-18s, uh, I think. The Greenfield side appeals and also once we do finish with F-18 operations, we can then make a decision about uh, what those facilities that uh, units like 2OCU and 3 Squadron 77, um, what other use could they be put to? And if they really have no further use, then we can uh, actually uh, bulldoze them and then start redeveloping the base there in another way. The Greenfield side is is certainly the uh, way forward, we feel. Will we be using those carport-style awnings like where uh, up at Williamtown we park the F-18s in a bay with a cover and so on? Uh, or will it need to be more security, more cover and so on, given the, the, the high-tech and the stealth aspects of the F-35 and protecting the secrets involved? No, we'll be using carports for the F-35. And the other funny thing is that the F-35, sorry, the carports for the, uh, for the aircraft, uh, that's... Uh, almost a unique Australianism because when I went to Alaska and I saw the uh, the F-22s up there, they're in the open in general and Alaska has some of the most uh, horrendous uh, <laughs> climate. Certainly down at um, over at Edwards Air Force Base, the aeroplanes uh, quite often are undercover but not always. They're sometimes out in the sun and uh, certainly down to Eglin the same. So it's a, an Australian idea that you build a carport for your aeroplanes and uh, the main reason that we built the carports initially was um, actually for the F-111s when we, we got those because when the F-111 is sitting on the ground, it, it wasn't pressurised and so the seals on the uh, canopy and, and all the other seals in the aeroplane uh, weren't inflated. So anytime it rained, uh, it got into the aeroplane and caused a issues with the avionics and uh, flooded the cockpit and everything so we oh dear. and of course uh, you know uh, the weather at rap base Amberley was always um, a little bit uh, wet in summer and so um, they they built the carports for it and uh, it's sort of something which is we decided was such a good idea we've done it for every aircraft since the f-35 would be no different we'll have carports at williamtown and we'll put the airplanes into hangars if we need to do any more serious maintenance than that because it's on base, no one with a telephoto lens is likely to be able to look into any panels or anything like that because it, it won't be out in the open as much. Oh, correct. If you're not working on it and there's no power to it, it's um, quite benign from a, a security point of view. Well, I guess with the greenfields, you can be creating just the kind of buildings you require for the n number of staff, the wing structure and so on of the operations, and also for the um, storage of all those new flight suits and helmets. <laughs> Absolutely. We've got some uh, very talented folk. We have a, uh, in the new air combat capability program when I was there, the, uh, we had a young uh, squad leader who, who was doing a brilliant job of liaising with the air crew, getting the requirements for the facilities. So I think we'll end up with a very good outcome when it comes to having facilities which really are tailor-made and really support our F-35 operations very well. And of course, when you build your own facilities like that on a greenfield site, you'll be able to, of course, um, have a layered uh, security so that you, obviously, the aeroplanes and the operations you put at the, the heart 
of your uh, facilities and then you have other support areas around it and then outside that you have your admin areas and then etc to to provide a little bit of a security in depth arrangement so that uh, that that's the other benefit of being able to build it from the ground up Okay, so that's Williamtown. Similar kind of operations going on at Tyndall. I mean, I imagine you don't quite have the same number of people around the base in terms of noise complaints and so on that you might at Williamtown. You're right there. We'll probably reuse a little bit more at Tyndall and also we will be putting down a tarmac and we will be building new ops and maintenance facilities. But a lot of the facilities that are currently used by 75 Squadron will be kept and they'll be used for visiting squadrons. So I think it will be a little less... I guess, uh, comprehensive, the rebuild at Tyndall than it will be at uh, Williamtown. Of course, Williamtown will have two operational squadrons and a training squadron, so much larger uh, facilities footprint anyway. What other bases are they likely to operate from regularly? Aside from just a a transient visit, where else are we likely to see the F-35 on a semi-regular basis? Well, in fact, the F-35 will in many ways be not a lot different to the F-18 in the way that it gets around and and does things. The um, F-35, you know, will be our multi-role fighter, so it will be uh, providing training for the Navy and the Army, and it will be going to all the the different bases that the the current fighter fleet go to. To do that, we will have to spend a little bit of money on some of the bases just to have it so that if we have the F-35 deployed there for any length of time, we'll have the basic footprint there that we can then put our deployable mission planning and and maintenance facilities on to support any uh, deployed F-35 operations. But the bases would include the normal uh, suspects there. You'll have um, the capability to support the F-35 at uh, Darwin, Townsville, Edinburgh, Pierce, Learmonth, Curtin, Sugar, you know, the bear bases. Also, because of the the new weapons um, or the new inventory of weapons uh, coming in and uh, the requirement to uh, maintain and store them, We'll also have MindBat, the um, munitions facility, upgraded as well with some capability. Now, you mentioned way back at the start about support equipment, and we've just touched on it then. What kind of support equipment is required for the F-35? Well, probably the the big ticket item is the ALICE system. Uh, Not ALICE in Wonderland, but uh, Autonomic Logistics Information (laughs) System. Uh, It's probably uh, as mind-blowing as ALICE in Wonderland, I think. um, So the Autonomic Logistics Information System on the F-35 really controls the ground environment for the F-35 and it talks to the F-35, it works with the um, built-in test systems to identify what has gone wrong, to alert the maintenance people to that, to write work orders, to make sure that the right technicians are alerted and sent to the right aeroplane to maintain it. But it does more than that. It actually also controls your training systems, so the the simulators and the uh, programming and the maintenance of those. Also, your mission planning systems, uh, it includes uh, all that. So you can imagine, by the time you put all your spares, all your support equipment management, uh, it even manages your technical workforce uh, and your aircrew as well. If you inject all the information in there, it will tell you basically what's wrong with the aeroplane, what support equipment you need to fix it, whether that support equipment's in date or out of date. It'll tell you who is qualified to use that support equipment at this point in time and who's available not on leave and who can go and work the aeroplane. So, I mean, it is possible to use the uh, ALICE system to that degree. In Australia, we'll have to then link that into our other systems we have for managing various uh, aspects of our technical workforce and our, our maintenance and our logistics. But in the broad, we will have a very strong footprint print of Alice in Australia. We'll have a uh, 
have our own server in Australia to uh, maintain our aircraft in Australia to work it and then to also talk back to the US to Lockheed Martin for issues that cover the entire fleet and also for ordering of spares and other things. So Alice is the main thing. Uh, lots of people uh, quiz me about uh, why Alice and why Autonomic Logistics Information System? Well, auto Autonomic, uh, you know, uh, probably you're aware, but uh, some people may not be that Autonomic is um, something that occurs without thought. For instance, your heart and various um, physiological functions like that. Well, Alice is meant to be one of those things you don't have to think about. You don't put uh, conscious effort into. It just happens around it. It's uh, the lifeblood uh, of the F-35. You've mentioned a lot of areas there, like your training, who's qualified, who's on leave, everything like that. So Alice is going to have to integrate quite tightly with all the existing IT infrastructure that you've got in the Air Force. So I imagine this is a very huge part of the integration there is you're going to have to upgrade all your workstations and deploy it on its own network, but then also have integration. Are people going to need dual workstations on desks, one for Alice, one for the, all the other apps? How does that work out? We've got CIO group, so the uh, Chief Information Officer group in defence um, working on the integration. Uh, in general, we operate Alice through our normal DRN, DSN and other IT systems that we already have. There will, be, of course, be some standalone uh, workstations which um, will operate Alice, but a lot of the functions and that you'll be able to tap into the IT infrastructure that's already in Australia. So we're putting a lot of effort into working out how it's going to integrate into Australia. As you say, it's a um, quite a large task. In fact, if I had to pick one task there that is um, quite daunting, that's it. Identifying all the different areas in the Australian Defence Force and Australia in the broad but F-35 will require integration into. Yeah, I don't envy you that one. That's going to be a big challenge. The good news though is that we've already got a number of F-35s flying in the US and the uh, US Marine Corps is quite active at working through the issues at the moment, getting ready for their initial operating capability next year. I guess the risk mitigator for us with something like ALICE is the fact that the United States Marine Corps will need to deploy with ALICE and make it work three, four, five years before we actually need to do yep. it for our IOC. And the US Air Force is looking at 2016 for their IOC. So we're seeing good progress. Um, the other one is, um, it might be, again, a bit counterintuitive that the risk we have with uh, Alice I would characterise as a workforce issue, not a technical issue. As with any computer-aided maintenance system, really it doesn't work properly, as in if it requires workarounds to get the functionality that you need, that means you need extra technicians to do mm -hmm. that. It's not that it doesn't work. So the F-35s are flying fine at the moment and they're using early versions of Alice so they don't have the full functionality. What we want with the extra functionality is to ultimately get to a point where it, it does save us on technical workforce and speeds it up and makes it uh, more efficient. So at the moment though, it's a work in progress really for Alice to get to where we want to be in the 2020s with, in terms of functionality. But like I said, we're, we're seeing you know reasonable progress to date and the US Marine Corps, yes, they got a few workarounds and uh, but they're working through those and, and they're steadily issuing out updated versions of the Alice as we proceed along. We're currently yeah. looking at Alice 103 and we should have Alice 2.0 out there shortly and ultimately we'd like to see Alice 3.0 for us by 2023. Sounds like you're on the leading edge but not on the bleeding edge which is a good place to be with IT. <laughs> I'll tell you what, uh, if you want to have um, some uh, a good buffer, have the Marines. You can't get better than the US Marine Corps for being the ones that are a little bit closer to that bleeding edge, as you say. They certainly um, are very good at getting action and we've been quite happy to have them actually sort of uh, punching through and getting us closer to that capability. What are you doing about spares? Are, are you going to have central warehousing at Williamtown and the smaller one at Tyndall then deploy as required or is Lockmart running all that kind of stuff? 
Well, the agreement that we had with uh, other JSF international partners is that we will share spares. So there's a global spares pool of F-35 spares. This isn't too different to the F-18 or other aircraft because, to be honest with you, they're all managed in a global spares situation. The main thing is that we've decided that as far as ownership goes, we're happy for those spares to be in the global pool, not necessarily with an Australian-only stamp on them in Australia. We pay a fee for access to those spares. We have them in the global spares pool. You only really um, own the spares if you actually say that you need it and then put it on your aeroplane and becomes your part at that point. Now, of course, that works quite fine unless you have to deploy at very short notice, in which case you can only take what you've got with you for initial operations until the spares sort of catch up to you. So just like we have in the past, we'll also have, in addition to being a member of the global spares pool with access to that, we'll also have flyaway kits and a certain number of spares that are stamped Australian only, that we'll pay for and that they'll be for our use behind glass, break in case of emergency or <laughs> in case, you know, we, uh, we obviously have a part we need at very short notice to keep training going. You've got Alice, you've got the logistics, you've mentioned greenfields, buildings, things like that. Are you finding that the standard wing and squadron staff structure is going to suffice or are are there new roles and reporting chains required? The traditional uh, wing and squadron structure will remain. So we will still have 81, 82 and 78 wing and we will still have the uh, squadrons. We'll still have, you know, 377 and 75 as our operational squadrons and 2OCU as our training squadron. The arrangement we have, of course, is... um, uh, allows us to fit in, I guess, with the uh, the broader allies, you know, it gives us a lot of flexibility there and it's been tested over time. We don't see that the F-35 uh, really requires any change in the way we do organisation. Following on from a topic just before, you mentioned about spares being shared from the global pool and things like that. It's not just the United States forces that'll be using this, there's of course the RAF. Um, it was one of their pilots was the first to fly, mm. the first foreign pilots to fly the F-35. The, the Canadians, I believe, you've also got Japan, Israel, Denmark, possibly Korea, and now even sounds like Turkey and so on. Quite a few forces. Are, are we like to see, likely to see more integration with these services in the future, more combined training, um, exercises and so on, perhaps where they come to us or we go to them? Personally, I, I don't think there'll be a dramatic change in the way we exercise or the way we engage with our allies. We already exercise with uh, the RAF and with many other nations uh, through exercise such as Red Flag over in the US and, of course, Pitch Black in Australia and, and others. So the level of integration between our forces uh, will increase uh, if you have the same equipment. So the F-35 will make interoperability easier, but probably not a great expansion of exercises. We will be more closely concerned consulting, I guess, with our other allied partner nations on the F-35 program, because, of course, there'll be a lot of lessons learned that we want to share as we take the aeroplanes on board. So, for instance, we're already, we're finding we have a a very close relationship with the Netherlands, the RAF, and comparing notes with them, and, of course, uh, all the U.S. services. As we look at um, future weapons coming on the aeroplane, future capabilities on the aeroplane, some other partner nations will probably have those uh, capabilities and will, of course, then start comparing notes and having a closer relationship because of those connections. One that comes to mind, should we ultimately get a maritime weapons system such as the uh, Joint Strike Missile by the Norwegians, well, quite obviously, we would end up comparing notes and uh, lessons learned with the uh, Norwegians should we go down that path. That decision, of course, is well in the future and hasn't been decided. But other areas, um, not so much the flying side or the exercise side, but uh, certainly we will be in close collaboration with the UK and Canada with things such as the software reprogramming of the F-35. We are planning to have a single facility where we'll be able to work with our other 
traditional allied partners of the UK and Canada in that facility on F-35 software. So that will lead to a very close relationship from a software programming, electronic warfare point of view. So I see the connections uh, building and, and getting quite strong there, but not particularly um, seeing F-35s flying more often around the world to go to different exercises. I think a lot more of it will be done either virtually or in the support of the F-35 area. Something that has come up, of course, we've got our new LHD ships coming online, the Canberra being the first one, with those big old ski jumps on the nose. And that, of course, has got a lot of people going on because they see the ski jump. As far as I'm aware, that's an integral part and it costs too much to actually remove it and leave a flat deck. Uh, But, of course, that's making people wonder if Australia may ever see F-35Bs operating from those ships in the future. The F-35B could operate from the LHD. um, There's nothing fundamentally um, wrong with the LHD that would preclude it from doing it. It hasn't been fitted out for F-35 operations and so as a result when they set the requirements for the LHD there were a number of areas where they in a way despecified it so that it really only supported helicopter operations rather than fixed wing. For instance, um, you know, it would obviously require a um, more advanced radar and areas that the LHD would require modification before it could actually accept fixed wing and operate them effectively from the LHD. The other thing about the um, F-35A versus the F-35B, we ended up selecting the F-35A because it's lighter, more manoeuvrable, it's got a greater weapons payload and significantly longer range than the F-35B. And also that the F-35A is significantly cheaper than the F-35B in purchase and to operate as well. So there were quite good reasons why we selected the F-35A, but again... We're entering into a force structure review at the moment and of course I imagine that one of the things that they might look at is um, the potential for uh, F-35B. However, at this point in time, that is you know, really just pure conjecture. The only government approval we have is for 72 F-35As to replace the F-18AB and any decision about replacing the F-18F with a further squadron of F-35 whether they be A or B is a decision that needs to be taken after the force structure review and many years down track by a future government. You just mentioned the Super Hornets. We only recently bought them on and we've had quite a number of new airframes coming online into the RAF, including Super Hornets, C-17s, the KC-30A tankers, the Wedgetail, the E-7. And there's a few new ones coming online now. The Growlers are underway. The C-27J's happening. Poseidon's being announced. There's possibility of the uh, Triton unmanned aerial system, the Um, long-range reconnaissance one. I imagine this has put quite a bit of strain on the RAF and DMO to be making this much change. It certainly is a challenge. In my almost, you know, over 37 years in the Air Force, I've never seen a period of such concentrated change, changing out capabilities and getting new ones in. So it is a uh, obviously outstanding from an Air Force point of view to have all these projects coming online. But of course, it does come at a cost, and the cost is uh, trying to introduce these capabilities with a workforce that has to remain capped. And so that is the greatest challenge to us. It's like having a huge Rubik's cube. And you basically, you know where you want to get to and you know where you are at the moment. It's just that getting there is going to be the challenge. And you unfortunately can't have a few extra little cubes to add on to get your colours right or anything like that. So you've got the fixed workforce. So, And the way that we're managing that, as you've seen with the F-35, is we're not going for the Big Bang Theory. You know, in 2020, we're not standing down three squadrons and standing up three squadrons of F-35. To do that, that would require us to have an extra 1,000 people Mm. above 
what we have now in our workforce and we don't have that. So what we have is um, a lot of people working on each of those programs you mentioned. They've each identified a plan on how they're going to introduce those capabilities. We've taken each of those plans and we've then put a constant workforce across the top and we've identified when people can do them. It is quite a complicated plan. It's definitely doable. It's a complicated plan and it really hinges on people and making sure that we uh, keep to a schedule introduce the capabilities against those planned milestones. If we start delaying any of those capabilities, there will be a second or third order effect. The Growler is another classic example. We can't put all our emphasis into Growler or all our emphasis into F-35. We need to start doing the F-35 now, get the uh, training kicked off, then go through the Growler acceptance and entry into service then come back and look at the IOC for the F-35. So we're doing things in a very orderly and planned way. It is a complicated plan, I must admit that. The greatest challenge is people and workforce, but we are blessed in the Air Force by having a great number of very talented, keen people, and it will all be in good hands, I think. What's it going to be like in another, say, 20 years' time or so as uh, all these new airframes, they've, they've all settled in, they're all quite mature, we're going to have to start getting ready to replace all of them all over again, aren't we? That's a possibility, but I, I think some of the airframes we're getting are going to be with us for a very long time. I don't know, about 15 or 20 years, I think more 40 or 50, you know, so I'd go as far as to say I think uh, that the F-35 will see us through many decades of service. Obviously, it'll have different software when it finishes and different weapons and, and a few hardware upgrades, but it'll still be an F-35, I think, uh, well past the middle of this century. I think that we'll um, also see that uh, you know some of the uh, capabilities coming in will obviously be used a lot and we'll probably see those cycle through. Uh, unmanned air vehicles, I would say, would be one area where I think we'll see quite a number of uh, improvements in coming years and I wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. if we change those out a bit more often. But some of the major platforms like C-17 and uh, MRTT and P-8s and F-35s and Growlers, I think will be with us for uh, quite a few decades there. I don't feel as though I'm giving the next generation the problem it's probably the generation after that will have the problem. <laughs> the bottom line is there will be a reasonable stagger in it. And I think the situation we had this time with so many capabilities in such a small number of years, uh, I don't see it getting concentrated that way again. I, I see it being spread out over a number of years. Talking to my father recently, they, they thought the Sunderlands were old in the 50s and early 60s. And the Orion that he went over and picked up is still in flight, still being used and still being upgraded. He's like, wow, that's my plane and it's still there, you know. Well, in fact, that's a, um, a major trend in aviation, uh, military aviation, is that uh, if you went back to just after World War II and the uh, expected service life of aeroplanes that were brought into service in the 40s and 50s was five years, you know, the Sabre and, mm. uh, and aircraft like that, the Hunters, and they were brought in in you know 1950 and then you know by 1955 they were old hat you know already they weren't front line and the trend is that we're now seeing obviously uh, you know with the F-111 and the F-18 the F-18 when when it goes out of service will have been in service as long as the F-111 we're now seeing that 30 or 40 years is not unusual for the hardware as you well know the F-18 that we have nowadays there's no resemblance to the F-18 we got in 1985 uh, into the squadrons the F-18 of today, the F-18AB with a, a Jahamics and the Lynx and everything else is just leaps and bounds ahead of the aeroplane back then. And same with the F-111 when it went out of service, you know, with the uh, AGM-142 and the uh, PAVTAC, all the other, the digital avionics, it was uh, so far ahead of the aeroplane that I first flew on. And the F-35 will be the same. 
and I guess uh, the risk of being a little bit controversial, I, I'd be very surprised if the F-35, when it finally goes out of service, is flying as a UAV rather than a manned aircraft. Yeah, the, the way things are going, the, the optionally manned helicopters we're seeing out there at the moment, and uh, they're not all, all new projects. A lot of them are remanufactured older ones. Yeah, we're only just uh, talking about bringing these uh, capabilities into service, and I'm sure that the future generation of Air Force uh, folk will think of a, a whole bunch of ways of uh, operating these airplanes and airframes that we won't even have any idea of thinking about right now. And, you know, they'll think of new ways, uh, new operations to uh, use them in, new capabilities, new techniques, and of course, um, the software upgrade and the hardware upgrades will uh, accommodate that sort of thinking. Yep. All, all in the future, though. Whoever thought we'd see P3 Orions uh, operating over the desert? Exactly. We've discussed quite a bit of the integration going on. Alice sounds like a major new aspect that we've never had to do before. Is there anything else on the F-35 project that the RAF's never had to do with bringing a new aircraft online? I would say probably not. I'd say that um, in terms of maintenance and support and use of the aeroplane, we've sort of done everything before. It will be an evolutionary change, I think, in most regards. Probably, I guess, just a couple of areas. One area is software reprogramming, where I think that we have done software reprogramming, as in making uh, changes to the mission software to optimise it for the Australian employment of weapons and for the Australian environment. We've done that in the past with the F-111 and the f 18 to a certain extent. But with the F-35, we are talking about uh, an aeroplane where all the capabilities are really dependent on the software. They're um, software-driven capabilities in the broad. It has uh, something like 10 million lines of code in the aeroplane, so more than three times what an F-22 has, more than any other aircraft airborne. So it's quite an incredible capability. So I think that's an area that will be somewhat of a challenge to us. And the second one, it's Alice and everything else. And that is that in the past, we've bought an aeroplane and it's come with some support equipment. We really are this time buying a weapon system. We're buying something that will reach out and have to be integrated into almost every aspect of what the ADF does in some way, shape or form. It may not be an IT link, it might be a procedural link, it might be an air gap uh, link, whatever, but it will have an impact on much more broad operations than perhaps the F-18 and certainly the the Mirage and all those had when they were introduced into service. Uh, The example I'll use is that the um, unclassified capabilities of the F-30 that have been in the open media, it identifies that the aeroplane is quite capable of detecting things such as mortar fire and they can detect very small targets at very long range. You know, you can imagine it's um, been reported that it's detected missile launches using the radar. Just think about those and you go, well, that's incredible. So the fact that we could actually put an F-35 somewhere on the Earth's surface and essentially it would be able to act as a node and to identify what's moving in its area and then transmit that back to other platforms. So I think the fact that that information would be incredibly useful to land forces, maritime forces, other air forces. So we are talking about something which will just change the way we do operations and it will require new ways of taking that information and then actively using it in other platforms. So we're going to have to do have a different way of doing business for that. It's taking the uh, network battlefield to a whole new level, isn't it? It is. And it's making us think about what exactly the F-35 is. For example, the F-35, we're buying it as an air combat asset, but in some cases it might be the preferred sensor platform. In some cases, it will do a job uh, not too dissimilar to what we would expect the AEWNC to do. In other cases, it'll be a, a mini P-8, a mini, a mini maritime uh, reconnaissance aeroplane. In other cases, it might act as a, um, a comms relay. In the future, it could be used as a master platform to control other uh, unmanned um, versions of itself. You know, So, I mean, it is going to be more, I think, than just a traditional 
air-to-air, air-to-ground, air combat asset. We've got a bit of a way to go to get to that. You're very heavily involved in getting us there. It's been fantastic chatting to you so far, and I really appreciate your time. I've got one last question for you, which is in the next five years or so, as we're bringing it all online and getting it all up to speed, what are the prime hurdles or stumbling blocks that you have identified in the project to, to make sure that it goes as smooth as possible? I think the number one challenge will be the one that I raised earlier, and that is workforce. It will be making sure that the um, we obviously retain the expertise of the pilots we put through the F-35 course and that we make sure that they're focused into uh, generating the capabilities. So it's that progressive stand-up of capability. You know, we start with very small numbers and we need to make sure that we use these people to greatest effect so that we can have the right number of pilots when we, it comes time for IOC. The same with the workforce. It's trying to make sure that we keep the F-18AB capability as viable and, and also um, meet all of government expectations when it comes to air combat out of the F-18AB fleet all the way through to when we can stand up the F-35 capability. So it's the challenge is managing your workforce so that you actually maintain the level of capability all the way through the next couple of decades because the government has said on a number of occasions they don't want to see an air combat capability gap. And I think that is the number one challenge for us is to make sure that we, mm. we don't let our guard down. We don't either let the F-18AB deteriorate too quickly before we've stood up the F-35 capability so it's balancing the new and the old that is the challenge. Cos, is there anything else you'd like to say on the project while we're here? I would just like to say that I was custodian of the F-35 program for a relatively short period. It's a program that's been going a long time and it's had a lot of dedicated, hardworking people and I think they're the people that have done a great job over the years. I just happened to lead it at a critical period during its time. But I'm very impressed with the quality of the Air Force people that have been working on the program and also the fact that it's not just Air Force. We've had CIO group, we've had facilities people, DMO, all working together. DSTO has provided great support so it's been a real team effort to to develop the program to look at the risks to assess it and to inform government to the point at which they're willing to proceed with the program and I was very pleased to see that occur recently so I've had a great team Um, there's been many people before me that have done a great job and uh, we're still many years away of course from uh, IOC so a lot more work to be done I have every confidence given the uh, quality of the Air Force team Air Vice Marshal Kim Osley thank you so much for coming on the show It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very happy to participate. Do you have the need, the need for speed? Jetride Australia is the country's premier fighter experience and the perfect gift for every budding Top Gun. From mild to wild, Jetride tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make the dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash PCDU or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. Jetride. Forget the rest, fly with the best. Hi, I'm Dave Homewood from the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's own aviation podcast series where we feature the stories of Kiwi pilots, warbird restorers, Air Force veterans, home builders, historians, authors, modelers, stories from aviation museums and associations, air show reports, and much, much more. The Wings Over New Zealand show loves to bring you the stories of Kiwis who've made their mark on aviation. So find the Wings Over New Zealand show online. Find more about it on the world-famous Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum and like us on Facebook. We also love to listen to Steve, Grant and the team at the Plane Crazy Down Under Show. 
Want to advertise your business on the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast? Scripts and Voices has teamed up with the boys at Plain Crazy Down Under to bring you an exclusive offer. Scripts and Voices can make your ad to feature on this podcast at a specially reduced cost. That includes writing your ad, voiceover, backing music and production. To get your ad made in time for the next podcast, check out scriptsandvoices.com. Follow the link and send us an email. For advertising rates and packages, please see the Plain Crazy Down Under website. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. And welcome back, folks. Well, I tell you what, uh, I think I'm all left 35 out. No, not really. But uh, I tell you what, uh, Grant, a fantastic interview there with uh, Air Vice Marshal Osley. Thanks, mate. Yeah, Cos and I were we were actually on the phone for about an hour and a half and uh, went through quite a bit of stuff and uh, trimmed it down, kept it flowing, and yeah, I'm really happy with it. it there was a lot of great information there. Now, uh, Andrew, uh, speaking of uh, military brass, uh, just uh, last night as we record this, you were up in Canberra uh, attending another uh, presentation on the F-35, this time from the Chief of Air Force. Can you tell us much about what was uh, discussed there? Yeah, Kef, um, he, he's leaning forward a little bit more. He he, um, he, he spoke to a, a group of industry heads, uh, uh, senior and, and middle Air Force management, and there were a few media there as well. So, And, and he, he's launched what they call um, Jericho, which is a, a plan to try and get uh, the ADF and industry to to start thinking about integrating capabilities more from the, when they start developing them, not from when they enter service and then, you know, scratch your head and try and figure it out then, but actually try and think about that in the very early days of development. Um, you know, they're looking at sort of trying to shorten development times and acquisition times and things like that. So he's planted the seeds for that. And it was quite an interesting presentation. And I'm looking forward to see how the uh, the mainstream media reports it because I, I'm really hoping you got the message through. Is that uh, like reducing lead time and things like that by perhaps, I, I know one of the things that's delayed a number of projects like the F-35, the 787 and so on has been they've done so much new tech stuff. They've done yep. so many new things that um, are we learning that maybe we need to cut back on some of the new and and build on what we've got now that because we've done a big leap forward we need to consolidate would that be part of the help well i don't think it's so much um in really big scale projects like those because you know you're talking about revolutionary technologies and and they do take a long time to develop you know whether the f-35 has been too long or not is arguable and i'd probably say it has been and and the 787 certainly had a lot of issues as well so but i think that he's he referred to the DiggerWorks model, which the Defence Force uses, and, and DiggerWorks has been able to uh, prototype and get into operational service within six months um, things that uh, our soldiers in Afghanistan have used. And um, so things like upgrades and, and um, small additions and, um, and, and enhancements to capabilities, I think that's where he's more referring to. Okay, so it's it's more the uh, inspiration for uh, getting information like DiggerWorks. I take it that's a uh, frontline kind of information coming back from the soldiers who know because they know the inf- the front end, working closely with um, representatives from industry to come up with a solution. Yeah, exactly. You know, they had um, sort of mi- middle to senior soldiers who came back from Afghanistan in the early days, gave a lot of feedback back into DMO and into Capability Development Group, who then went out to industry, said, and and, and an example for example is. Soldiers who had sustained injuries to their groin and lower body from uh, mines and IEDs, 
they developed um, this silk underwear, which are like bike shorts or, or compression shorts, which actually has helped to save a lot of injuries in those areas from some of those smaller IEDs. So that, and, that, and that's something that was able to be acquired, tested and fielded within a few months. That's great. Yeah. It's, it's almost a shame, isn't it, that, uh, that, you know, combat situations and wartime actually uh, usually, you know, uh, if there's one good thing that comes out of them, I suppose it advances technology. I mean, you know, not, not that anything ever good does come out of war, but it seems always to be the way. Uh, and, you know, as long as those lessons stay learned, that's the problem with the posting cycle in defence. People move on after two or three years and you find after a couple of cycles, a lot of those lessons get, get forgotten. So it's important that they are retained somehow. Well, there's also the bigger picture lessons as well. We seem to repeat a few things in, in various um, conflicts here and there. And it's, uh, you know, one could say that um, some of the Middle East scenarios are almost a Vietnam all over again. And uh, phrases like that get thrown around and it's... Uh, the same thing happens in in industry. Yeah. Uh, people move on, and it's retaining that knowledge is and and applying it, and bothering to look at it is <laughs> really hard. Well, a lot of those things are at the political level. But Jeff Brown also gave an example of when he um, moved across from the classic Hornet to the F one eleven around the year two thousand. The F one eleven had just finished its um, avionics upgrade program and was fitted with all these digital navigation aids. But when he transferred over, he'd come from the classic Hornet, which had those digital avionics already, and yet the F one 11 crews were still using um, analog waypoints and things like that on missions and he couldn't understand why so he, he wants to be sure he wants to make sure that when we do get the f-35 and it's integrated with things like wedgetail and growler and um, you know the vigil air command and control system and all those kinds of things that we're not using old procedures and 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 things like that that we actually break down those processes and, and try and adopt new new tactics and new procedures so we're, we're using a, a gun as a gun as opposed to a club for example exactly well, it's really a question of mindset, isn't it? I mean, uh, obviously, these aircraft, uh, and I guess uh, this is probably what uh, the Chief of Air Force was alluding to, um, they don't want to make the mistake of operating the F-35 as if it was just a, a bigger uh, Hornet. Exactly, exactly. And and that lesson was learned, luckily, fairly early on with the Super Hornet. We initially started operating it like it was a big Hornet, and, and very quickly the guys coming back from exchanges on F-22s said, no, this is how you use an Acer radar. And, um, and, and suddenly, you know, the... the the eyes opened and, and the light bulbs came on and, and now it's really being used almost in a fifth generation way. Obviously, it's not a fifth generation aircraft, but it has some of those attributes uh, like the Acer radar and, and some some data fusion that really is um, enhancing that capability. Andrew, you've been around this program for a long time and uh, you know there's, there's, it's obviously, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it's been controversial in some sectors. Why do you think that is with the F-35? I wonder if there were other options. I don't know that there were. There's a lot of discussion around about, you know, perhaps why didn't we buy the Eurofighter, but the Eurofighter really isn't a fifth generation fighter is it yeah well the, the con- controversy around the program has you know and, and like i said before a lot of it is warranted you know it, it's a multi-service program and, and we all saw what a disaster the f-111 was in the early days when they tried to make a navy fighter out of it it was never going to work it turned out to be a great strike aircraft but it took 15 to 20 years to get to that point so everyone sees what they're trying to do with the the jsf and they think oh look not another joint aircraft it's never going to work. Um, and then, you know, there, there's been the, um, a lot of the critics have pointed out that the the A model and the C model are compromised because of the B model being a stable mm-hmm. aircraft. It, it, it's a particular design. And a lot of that is warranted as well. You know, you're never going to have a Mark 2.5 V, uh, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. Yeah, and the, the so, weight penalty it's carrying because of the uh, the engine being the same between all three models, even though the A and C don't have that lift fan driving off the front. No, it's got I mean, it's got the weight. Yeah, but there is, there is a lot of growth left in that engine, I think, and you know it's still early days for that engine. I I 
I think that that will be overcome eventually, and especially as they get down to later block builds of the aircraft, they'll find more ways to pull weight out. But you're right, Grant, that it is certainly an issue right now. Now, you talk there, of course, of the F-35B model, and I think we should talk about that because there's been some talk about it in the media recently. Now, I know with great interest as I uh, go past the shipyards down here in Melbourne, and they're building, of course, the uh, landing helicopter docks down there, um, Harrier carriers, I guess they're known as in the US forces, but uh, they've got these giant ski ramps on the front. Now, of course, um, these uh, ships were originally built uh, in some form in Spain and brought out here to be finished off in Australia. I guess it does, you know, now the, the Prime Minister has even been out in the media this week saying we might even look at operating some F-35Bs off those ships in the future. What do you think of that idea? I'm not sure whether I like it or not. I mean, it would be very, very cool, but I mm. wonder if it'd be practical. Well, the, the Prime Minister is the one pushing it. Uh, it's not coming from within defence. Um, certainly with budget levels the way they are at the moment. So it's, it's going to be very hard to justify, you know, even with the 2% GDP target that the, the government has, it's going to very, be very difficult to do it and do it effectively. A, a lot of people I've spoken to, well, you know, you, you've got one, on one side, you've got a lot of guys say, look, you know, it's, it will be a, a really flexible capability. You'll be able to park one of these off, off someone's shore. Hopefully it's not a, a, a real high threat environment and you'll be able to really call the shots. But other people say, no, you're going to need more air warfare destroyers. You're going to need more replenishment ships. The LHDs in their current form will need some modifications done to them because they've been optimised for helicopter carrying and, and amphibious warfare, not for carrying the jets. Um, but that's all doable because the Spanish version of the same ship will be carrying Harriers and, and maybe F-35Bs one day. I wonder what sort of modifications would be needed to be made to these uh, to these LHDs. I don't know firsthand, but I've heard from some people that um, the spaces that the Spanish uh, ship uses for um, aviation fuel and for weapons storage are being used for other things on our ship. Um, and But, you know, the, it, the space is there, so it, it may just require a bulkhead and, and some plumbing. I, I really don't know. Um, the other thing, though, is that our ships don't have a precision approach system that the jets would require. Uh, the helicopters don't need that. So, you know, that... that is something that um, would have to be looked at. Yeah, and the other uh, the other issue that I've heard uh, talked about, uh, I guess more in the defence media and the aviation media, is the idea that uh, if the, you know these aircraft are generating a lot of heat pointed straight down, uh, and whether or not the decks would be uh, configured to handle those sort of temperatures. Yeah, there's a um, they've developed a, a coating called Thermion, which is a, a steel and uh, ceramic mix. And it's able to handle the um, temperatures. The, the Americans um, developed that for the V-22. Uh, and it's able to handle the, the V-22 sitting there with engines running, waiting to take off, actually develops, uh, sort of generates more heat than an F-35 landing. So, you know, it, it's um, it, it, it's doable. Um, and, and every time a, a US LHD goes on deployment, they actually touch up that deck coating. So it, it's not something that's, um, that's, that's difficult to do. And it's it's something that, and all the other modifications are something that could be done at the first, um, you know, scheduled uh, yard period for the ships, which is probably the early to mid 2020s, by which time we would learn how to use them. And, and it may then be about the right time to buy some V models. Well, they'll be coming in, those ships will be coming in for a fit out anyhow, as you were saying, a midlife upgrade and things like that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. that happens every decade or so. Yeah. yeah. I guess the whole concept of it is that, um, you know, I know the Americans are the greatest exponents of this. You use an aircraft carrier as a force projection asset. I wonder if our forces are actually big enough to do that. And, you know, one of the reasons I wonder that, of course, is that the F 35 
five is being brought in is with uh, you know one of the ideas they talked about there is interoperability, and it gives you know our air force the the opportunity to work uh, you know in a more integrated sense with other larger forces like the Americans, the Canadians, the British. You know, is Australia really in a position to be able to project force like that? Is that something that our defence force you know would really want to do? Well, the F thirty five A already gives us that interoperability, especially with countries you know the US, uh, Japan, Korea are buying it, Singapore may buy it. Uh, the Brits will always have a presence in this area. So th- that interoperability is already there. But you're right, a, a, a large deck carrier or, you know, an LHD, which is it a large ship? It is a large ship. It's actually bigger than the HMS Invincible and HMS Hermes, which went to the Falklands um, combined. Yep. So um, it certainly has a presence. But, you know, other people I speak to think you really need two or three of these things to really be able to have a ship at sea or a ship available to go to sea at, at, at any one time. Yeah, and the logistics trail for that would be huge. Yes. And it's also like it's like having a, a squadron of aircraft of 16 aircraft, typically 12 are ready at any point. Oh, that, on a good day. <laughs> yeah. I was I was quoting the uh, book figures, not the reality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I've, I've heard people tell me to put eight or 10 F-35Bs on one of these things, you'd probably need 28 to 36 aircraft in your fleet to be able to sustain those eight. I mean, okay, let's look at the um, the Romeo helicopter for a, an example. We're buying 24. We only need to have eight at sea at any one time. So that's a good ratio t- to be able to look after maintenance and training and other yeah. uh, upgrade cycles. That's the, about the ratio is a three-to-one ratio. Three-to-one. Yeah, I hadn't actually factored in the training. Yeah, yeah, I was just thinking about in terms of, uh, an operational squadron with aircraft being kept at the ready, but uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting interesting number. Another consideration with the the B model um, is that the A model we're buying is a US Air Force aircraft, and so all of our upgrades and all of our training will be done in conjunction with the US Air Force. So that's one sustainment stream. If we buy the B model, we're then going to have to set up a relationship with the Marines or with the Royal Navy, which is a whole new setup. We've got the relationship with the US Navy already with the Hornet and with the Super Hornet, and and that's not. Not an easy relationship to start up from scratch. That takes years to develop and to get everyone on the same page and into the same upgrade path and and all that stuff, and, and weapons integration path and things like that. It's not a, a day one capability. And when you talk about our partners in the program and you, you mentioning those nations, the, you know the British and uh, the Americans in particular, where does our program stand in terms of its advancement by comparison to, I guess, some of the smaller nations? Take the Americans out of it. How are the Canadians and the, and the British going with theirs? Uh, the Brits, um, they're launching their first carrier. Um, soon it'll be in the water, but it won't be commissioned for another two or three years. Uh, and by that time, they've got two F-35Bs already um, in the test fleet in the in the US. Um, they, they have a requirement at the moment for about 48 B models, but there is talk about them buying some A models as well. I'm not sure how advanced that is. And the, and the A models will replace the Tornado in the early to mid-2020s, I guess. Yeah, well, that'd be important to those tornadoes. They're getting pretty long in the tooth, so that's 1970s uh, technology, I guess. Well, I think the last ones were built late 80s, and they have received the GR4 upgrade, so they are actually quite capable aircraft, But um, you know, they and they do have some good standoff weapons now. But, yeah, you're right. They're like our, our classic Hornets. They are getting old. They're getting more expensive to maintain. Um, Canada, you mentioned as well, they, uh, they, they've actually done a political reset on the program because there, there was some, I guess, irregularities in choosing the F-35. Some people thought they should have held a proper competition and uh, a commission of audit found that they'd actually misrepresented the life cycle cost of the aircraft. So politically, they've gone back to square one. They're reassessing everything. So they're looking at grip and they're looking at 
Typhoon. They're looking at uh, Super Hornet. But, you know, Lockheed Martin will tell you they're still confident of the F-35 getting over the line. Um, all the Gripen supporters will tell you they're confident. So it, and I think they're still three or four years away from making that decision now, which is really going to stretch their Hornets a long way. Yeah, the Gripen, that'd be a, that'd be an interesting uh, aircraft to see in the skies of North America. Yeah, it, it's a it's a very capable aeroplane, but it's 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 still Gen 4. It, it, it doesn't have the integration. It's got some awesome data links, but that's only really been proven with other Swedish aircraft like their Arii uh, AWACS aircraft. So it'll be interesting to see if um, Gripen um, data links can integrate seamlessly with um, American Link 16 stuff. Yeah, the Link 16's big time. That's We've yep. got to have that if we're going to do exercises with the Yanks. Yeah. Well, we've got we've got Link 16 on our Wedgetail, on our Super Hornet, mm-hmm. on our Classic Hornet, but Link 16 is very bandwidth um, saturated mm-hmm. and it's not what they call LPI or low probability of intercept. Yeah. Um, the F-35 data link um, called MADL is, low pro- L- is LPI and they're trying to get it to talk to Link 16, which the other jets will be using. Uh, I think there's something called Link 22 coming down the track as well, but I don't really know how that works. Yeah, well, they, they do need to uh, to work on that. 16's been around for quite a while, but it, it's yep. the lingua franca for, for the networked uh, battlefield. Yep. It is absolutely well. I tell you what, it's a it's a fascinating aircraft. Uh, it's a fascinating program, and uh, just the uh, the the amount of organisation that goes into getting these uh, well any new aircraft into military service. But I think particularly this one, uh, it's going to give us a lot to talk about over the years to come. And uh, you know, my hope is that, uh, and I, I'm sure this will be the case by the time our aircraft start uh, coming into the skies here, it'll be a much more mature airframe. I think um, you know the F-35s. You know, there's there's plenty of them flying around now, uh, particularly with the U.S. military uh, getting all trained up and uh, you know ready to go so i think by the time we get them this you know whatever bugs might be in it hopefully will be well on the way to being ironed out or already ironed out by the time we get them absolutely we're, we're i think we're five years behind the marine corps ioc and the marine corps ioc is not your everyday ioc they're only going to do it with 10 aircraft and 10 crews so it's not what we would call an ioc but the u.s air force ioc is 2016 2017 so we're still going to have a three-year buffer there um and that and the u.s air force will do what they call their operational test in 17 18 interestingly after IOC, which is unusual, but um, but it still gives us a two-year buffer, and any bugs that come out of that will will be addressed and. Uh, hopefully fixable for us by the time we go IOC in 2020. Sure thing. And, you know, the, the knowledge base of the aircraft, it's just going to be far more extensive, I guess, than it is now. And uh, I'm, I'm sure it's quite extensive now, but, you know, imagine a few more years' time, uh, how much better it'll be. I think we have to accept now that uh, whether you, if you don't like the program, well, you know, too bad, really, it's coming. So uh, let's, <laughs> you know, we have to make sure that this is, the, you know, now that the decision has been made, the money has been allocated to uh, pay for these aircraft, then, uh, you know, it's uh, in everybody's interest that we make sure it's the best uh, fighter force uh, that we can wield and of course uh, you know Royal Australian Air Force pilots have a great reputation around the world and uh, I'm sure that uh, you know the, the RAF will do a fantastic job uh, getting these uh, squadrons stood up over the next decade. I, th- I think you're right if we, if we stick close to the US Air Force we stick close to the Brits the Brits are very in- innovative in the way they operate they're having to do more with less just like we are and the Americans are learning that lesson as well so I think innovation will be the order of the day and um, and that's what Jeff Brown was saying in, in, at the thing last night he, w- he was saying you know we've really got to look at this as a whole new way of doing business. It's not just a new fighter jet in the carports at Williamtown or Amberley. It's a whole new way of doing business. Fantastic. And, okay. And new carports, don't forget. Oh, yeah. 
absolutely. New new carports, new squadron headquarters. It'll be, it'll be a greenfield site at Williamtown, which is, I think Kim Osley mentioned it in, in your interview with him. It'll be brand new, um, everything there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, my first uh, media tour. It'll be I don't know how close we'll be allowed to get. Yeah, I, I, d- I doubt it'll be that close. But uh, look, it was a lot of fun hanging out with the three squadron guys last year and uh, chilling out in the ready room and all that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the uh, what the digs are like once the the new buildings are up and running. I think it'll it, be a different world. Those buildings at three squadron go back to the sixties. Correct. <laughs> well, that actually is like Amberley, isn't it? Uh, if you have a look at the um, the Super Hornet Transition Office, they've got a nice new building there at Amberley, but uh, all the other buildings up there look uh, a little bit old and dated. Uh, have you been over to 36 Squadron? That's lovely there. Yeah, well, no, I haven't been up there for a few years, but uh, the last time I was there, that's what struck me was their building looked very modern by comparison to everybody else's. And that was necessary. When, when you're operating an advanced aircraft like that, you know, obviously the um, the Americans will only release the technology to you if you have if you meet certain security standards. And those those standards include, include a lot more compartmentalization and a lot more layers, I guess, of um, security before you actually get to the flight line or get to where the maintenance area is. And that'll be even more so with the F thirty five. I guess just as we wrap this up here, if we're bringing these, uh, you know, theoretically we're bringing, uh, you know, these aircraft uh, on stream. If you look at our near neighbours around, and I guess um, even a little bit further afield, if we look at the Chinese, um, do those sort of nations have aircraft? You know, we hear a lot about, uh, you know, new Chinese supposed stealth aircraft coming. Do we know much about, you know, what our aircraft might potentially have to go up against in any potential future conflict? Well, I don't, and I don't think anyone outside the Defence Intelligence Organisation really does it yet, but. Um, a lot of analysts have had a look at them and, they, and you know, they, they've been impressed by the shaping of these aircraft. They certainly have a fifth-gen shape about them, but nobody's really been able to get close enough yet to look at what the surface finish is like, to look at what coatings they're using, to have a look at what, what level of integration they've got with the um, the avionics. And, and, you know, there's still some doubts about the engine technology in those countries as well, whether they can actually build an engine to last more than a 1,000 hours on, on the wing, so to speak. So it, it'll be interesting to see how fast they develop. Obviously, you know they are developing very rapidly, and and it's it's probably a fair assumption to say by the mid to late twenty twenties they'll have something that that'll come pretty close. I think the greatest measure of success uh, might be similar to what I consider to be the F one eleven, where uh, you know it really wasn't used in anger. So I guess that's the that's the whole point of it, isn't it? I mean, our F one elevens anyway. That's right, absolutely. Nice. You know, it, 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 the whole idea of having an air combat capability is that you don't have to use it. it, it it's good to have the big stick and leave it in the cupboard. Yes. Now, uh, Andrew, where can we find you online? Uh, comment.org and also. Yep, and yep. you're on Twitter as well? I'm on Twitter at uh, comment underscore au. Not, not doing a lot of activity at the moment because I'm very busy writing stories for Australian Aviation, which I'm happy doing, but uh, I'm hoping to build up uh, a more of a presence online soon, so yeah, keep an eye out. Well, mate, it's, uh, it's just a thrill as always to have you on the show, mate. We really appreciate the, uh, the level of knowledge you've uh, brought to the discussion here tonight. Like I said, uh, we, we're far from ex- experts, just, uh, you know, we uh, just see what we read here, but uh, we really appreciate you spending some time on the program with us uh, this evening. Uh, it's always a pleasure, guys. Love talking to you. No worries, thanks, and we'll catch you. I'll probably catch you again at the next air show, mate. Yep, absolutely. And we'll have more camera envy because uh, Andrew's got a fantastic camera, folks. You want to see it. <laughs> yeah, I can't use it. <laughs> fantastic. Now, Grant, uh, a little bit more low-tech, some more, uh, I guess, uh, well, I'm hoping to do some Cessna flying in the next few weeks, so I guess you'll be up in the balloon again. I'm certainly hoping so. 
if the weather permits and time and access to equipment and having crew and all that kind of stuff. A bunch of us are looking to get together about three hours north of Melbourne for the long weekend over Queen's birthday. So yeah, watch the Twitters and we'll see what we can make happen and see if anyone can catch up and maybe come for a fly with me. Okay, so farm owners to the north of Melbourne, you've been warned. That's the one, mate. That's the one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, to, and to all those who are complaining about how hard it is to build your hours on fixed-wing aircraft and all that, I say toughen up. Come and fly balloons and see what it's like to go out for a whole three-day weekend and clock one hour. That's <laughs> <laughs> a bit like me. Start, start going back to grand school at Moorabbin and clock zero hours in a year, Grant, oh, so there you go. Right, right, because you got to get the vehicle, the balloon, the fuel, get out of the into the countryside so you got to have somewhere to stay, find someone to, to crew for it. It, it adds up. <laughs> <laughs> we want to give a big uh, shout-out, a big uh, thanks to uh, Lockheed Martin and to the Royal Australian Air Force for allowing us to have such fantastic uh, access to so many uh, great people uh, involved with the F-35 program. It is going to be really, really interesting, folks. We hope you've enjoyed this monster episode of Plane Crazy Down Under. Grant, we'll be back really soon, I hope. Yeah, we've said that before. <laughs> yeah, we, that's very true. we got uh, lots of stuff uh, still to come, and I, uh, I think probably a little bit more military stuff, including my interview with the Chief of Air Force. That'll be in episode 120. But until then, Grant, in just reminding everybody, of course, that uh, when it comes to aviation new media, you should always remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. It certainly is. Playing crazy down under, thanks for joining us. We are Aviation in Australia. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU, and for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow, or any advertising inquiries, go to our website, plainecrazydownunder.com. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Solid red light on. Uh, the bitching light is out. Is it definitely 119, isn't it? I'm losing count. I hope so. It's out because otherwise we've missed something and stuffed something up on the website. All right. Well, good. <laughs> All right. Oh, we're off Let to me just started. clear my... It's been a long time since we've done one of these. All right. Here we go. Observe now, observe now as the principal host. Um, yes. <laughs> well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plain Crazy Down Under, episode 100. Guys, uh, let's kick the episode off. F-35, let's do it. Woohoo! F-35, let's do it. How corny. Franker <laughs> for, for the networked uh, battlefield. Yep, it is, absolutely. So you blew me out of the water with that, uh, you know, that, that fancy language there, Grant. Well, you know, I'm an IT geek from way back, so <laughs> IT geek meets aviation geek. I've, I, I, w- I would imagine it's a, an interesting form of hell because you've got aviation acronyms, Air Force acronyms, 
general military acronyms, IT acronyms, all merged into one. It would just be an amazing conversation to have. Well, that's inter- <laughs> that's interoperability right there for you. <laughs> no, that's the Tower of Babel. <laughs>